Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Andor episodes 4 through 7, the finale of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, House of the Dragon episode 9, and a minor, 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 minor spoiler for Halloween ends. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, on the previously on, we'll be catching up on episodes four through seven of Andor. Plus, we will be discussing the Rings of Power finale. Big stuff. Big stuff going on in the Southlands and elsewhere in Middle-earth. In the hive mind, we will be discussing uh, the Rings of Power finale with series co-writer Jennifer Hutchinson. Uh, in the airlock, we're going to be discussing the penultimate episode of House of the Dragon. And, of course, followed by your questions answered in the Ask the Maester segment. If you want to jump around, check the show notes for timestamps. Enjoy to be today. She's the number one. She's the best. She writes Godzilla. She answers all of your nerd fantasy sci-fi comic lore questions. She is the great and the powerful Rosie Knight. She's more powerful than the foundations of the earth. <laughs> Rosie, how are you? I'm good. What what introduction from the maester himself. I feel so honored. How are you doing? I'm doing great and I and I must say uh, a lot of uh, we were right content today. Oh, I know. I feel like last week, shout out <laughs> to our listeners because like, because we were having such a good conversation with Cody, the bell did not ring as much as you guys were expecting, <laughs> but the bell is going to be ringing today. Let's ring it. All right, <laughs> let's get, let's get started. First up, Andor. All right, let's start with Andor streaming now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, episode seven, the announcement written by Stephen Schiff and directed by Benjamin Karen have just dropped that uh, picks up at the end of episode six. The eye after the heist has taken place and now the news is starting to seep out into the galaxy. Um, uh, Mon Mothma not really understanding what rail was like planning now understands how how serious the rebellion mm-hmm. is and he says to her i think in a in a in a line that sticks with me is like what did i say i said there'd be no turning back once we do this and now she's really beginning to understand what that means and the isb um is swinging into gear they have egg on their face this has happened uh, it happened under their noses, and they are trying to figure out, okay, how can we figure? How can we track these people? Um, Miro has her own ideas about how to do it, and she uses like the or the um, Empire's version of the Patriot Act to <laughs> break numerous privacy laws in order to like soak up all the data from all the various sectors so that she can put together a pattern of what's going on out there in terms of like what the rebellion is up to. Um, And then we see Cassian back home uh, uh, 
just thinking about escape. He's done his part. He's got his credits. He's ready he's to go, look, baby. He's ready to go. He wants Marva to come and be to come with him. And let's just get out of here. Fuck this caring about things. We've done I've done the thing I needed to do and I barely got out of it alive. And now let's just spend that money and have fun. This show is really good. And I think the thing that has me that I can't stop thinking about is just how absolutely radical in its message this mm-hmm. show is. It's like it really is a Star Wars for 2022 yeah. in the way that Star Wars, when it came out in 1977, on top of the fact that it was this swashbuckling space adventure epic, must have felt really, really radical in, because it's, you know, it's this ragtag rebellion against a super empire with weapons of mass destruction. It's basically like the American, it's it it's taking like, the moral clarity of the rebel, mm-hmm. you know, this is on the heels of the Vietnam War in which we had the, uh, the United States of America, the most powerful country on earth, had been expelled from a from a small country using like every uh, means at its disposal. And it, Star Wars took that defeat, flipped the moral calculus, gave it to the good guys, us, and let American Western slash global audiences relate to the moral clarity of the underdog in a way that felt really, really invigorating, but also like radical. And I think this show is is doing that in much the same way. It's it's asking crazy questions in a Star Wars context, like when is it okay to like assassinate these security figures. Yeah. When is it okay to do that? When is it okay to to say it this has gone far enough and any means at our disposal are good to use against the foe? I think those are fascinating questions to ask in a Star Wars context. Yeah, I also think it it continues like you say the legacy of what Star Wars was about. It was about a small group of people going up against a fascistic superpower and collateral damage doesn't matter. It's heroic to blow up the Death Star no matter how many people yeah. die because you're it's the good of the many over the good of the few, you know? And this is doing it, but it is coming at it because A, it's long format storytelling and B, it's 2022 and we have a different creative team behind it. It's coming at it in a way that is a much more ground level view of the reality and the losses that occur and the the horror of actually having to kill someone, even if it's for, you know, the right yeah. reasons or something you believe in. Episode six, the eye, I mean, we talked about from uh, episodes, you know, that we'd seen one to four. We, 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 were, we thought the show was really well made, but it hadn't like necessarily found its, the messaging hadn't hit with us in the same way. When once you get to this episode six, episode seven, you know, it's episode five where you start to meet this collective of what in any other story would essentially be seen as terrorists, you know? Yeah. And, and you, I mean, that's, that's the, the big thing is this is that ultimate question of do you not realize that when you are watching Star Wars, Luke Skywalker is a terrorist to the Empire? You know, that is that is what we're seeing. But here, you get to see it on this ground level way, the real losses that happen, the, the risks that are taken. And it's very different. And the eye 
really did an unbelievable job of of bringing that to the forefront. Yeah, there's this, there is a, it's a fascinating calculus because it, this show is much like, again, Star Wars, A New Hope before it, it is a tacit admission that the messaging that many terrorist groups slash freedom fighting groups use is a univ- is one that has weight, right? It's an admission that those things that that those are persuasive arguments. And also like who the, tells the story? The rebellion win, so they are freedom fighters, not terrorists. Whereas right, in the eyes of the Empire, they are terrorists. So if the Empire had won, they would have forever just been told as terrorists. And the reality is a lot more complex. And I think that's what this is really tapping into. I've been thinking about the fact that watching this show, maybe more than any of the other shows that are on right now, it really gets at the idea that nobody says I'm the bad guy. Like Mm -hmm. everybody thinks they're the hero. Everybody thinks that they are defending their homes, defending their ideals, uh, you know, uh, trying to keep chaos and criminality at bay, fighting back against, you know, the powers and the forces of 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 destruction. Right. Nobody says I'm going to crush all opposition, mm-hmm. all these like weak little. I'm going to help everyone. Even though, it's even whatever though, I have to do is for the better of the world, the better of the galaxy. Even though Major Partagas does like say stuff kind of like this in this episode, it's all from a perspective of we're we're actually good. And that is like the way life works, which is kind of scary in the sense that if you subscribe to that, that idea that everybody thinks that they're a good guy, no matter how bad the shit that they're doing is, it really all comes down to then our perception of the world mm-hmm. and the and how we relate to facts from different angles. Yep. And the fact that it all comes down to our perceptions, what's right, what's wrong, what's just, what's not right, what's a war, what's a what's a rebellion, uh, you know, what's an insurgency and uh, or like a just confrontation with an overpowerful foe that all of that comes down to just like your belief system yeah. and the way you perceive things and your own personal emotions and, and backstory. That's kind of scary in a way because um, it's it, so subjective. It makes it feel it makes everything feel a lot more tenuous than we let ourselves feel about the world. And and I think this show really captures that in ways that just like have me thinking about it all the time. And I think something that's really interesting is there is arguably only one character in the show who does not think he's the good guy, and it's Cassian, because Cassian doesn't see himself as having a side. Cassian sees himself as a survivor, as someone who just needs yep. to do what he has to do to survive, whether, you know, and we see that slightly shift at the end of the eye when he kills someone who he deems to be a a betrayer somebody who might harm other people but that doesn't mean that he's suddenly turned into a right he's not like this true believer yeah and i think the irony is this is kind of one of my favorite fictional tropes that is also very true in real life is like the best leaders are the people who don't want to lead and that's why I think we, what we're yeah. seeing now is Cassian is going to become a key part of the rebellion because he doesn't believe he's only good. He actually sees the moral complexity of everything that he does. And 
I just think like you really hit on why I think the show is working because also I think it's very rare in any kind of Western entertainment or especially now in 2022 to have a show that poses the idea that direct action and violent action are necessary for radical change. Yes. That is an incredibly radical idea that a lot of people have. It's mind blowing to watch that in real life. So this is, yes. there's this, you know, these ideas of the power of imagination and what imagination can show are often very uh, utopian, but the reality of how we get to a better place is not clean or, or often nonviolent. And I think it is incredibly interesting to see that and not only see it, but in a difference from the original Star Wars, because again, many, many years later now, we feel it in a very different way. And the old Star Wars, the blasters, the the sci-fi-ness, the lasers, it made it feel very like, oh, a bad guy died. Oh no, just like it's a cartoon. Yeah. Whereas in this, you feel the deaths, you feel the pain, you feel the loss, you feel the cost of life, but you also see... And this is something I think we're going to see because this has all been kind of mini arcs. And I feel like you got a touch of it in the eye, but you really get it in episode seven. It's this like the banality of evil, this kind of horrific bureaucracy of death and mass imprisonment. Yeah. You know, we end episode seven with Cassian just getting put in prison for six years for being in the wrong place. And it's just like literally like the dumbest cop it, who's just like had it out oh, on a power trip. And it just punched me in the stomach because that's actually not fantastical. That's absolutely a real that's thing that real. people deal with. And this kind of the horrific bureaucracy of of incarceration and mass incarceration and the the laziness of fascism. And the best way to stop people rebelling is to just imprison them or kill them, you know. And this show is really digging into that and we we talked a little bit about her right but one of the things i'm most interested in is uh we have this isb agent uh dedra miro right is yeah. she working for the rebellion because i feel like she's just digging into a lot of secrets and getting a lot of freedom to do so and we've seen a couple of double agents but that's my kind of main like non-deeply political kind of wonder and theory as we come out of this episode i have not thought about that at all until this very moment but now i do wonder you know because because she's like actively going out of her way to dig into well, this information which seems like it's working in the favor of the empire but is she just finding because she's looking for missing imperial uh technology which has apparently been stolen by the rebels right but that's also very good for the rebels to know what is missing? What do they have information about that is missing? What do they not have? Where are their weaknesses? I'm very interested to see, see where that goes. That's very interesting. I had not considered that. But now that you mention it, I wonder if there might not be something to it. Listen, um, good you know, bad characters turning good, or at least gray, mm -hmm. is a is one of the major themes of Star Wars, that kind of redemptive arc. And you do wonder if the more she sees and the more she discovers about the Empire. Because she looked pretty horrified um, when they talked about like cracking down. You know, we we're definitely yeah. seeing more we we got that great moment in the eye where the 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 Empire officer who'd been helping this kind of cell of rebels Another one of his officers said to him, you know, you're going to hang for this. And he said, well, 
after everything, after working for you for so long and everything I've done, I deserve worse than that. And I think we're in this age of seeing empire and imperial forces and imperial complicit people suddenly realizing the horrors of what they've actually been supporting. You know, thinking about like, when is it okay to take violent action against an oppressor, which again, in this, with this idea that we've been talking about where everybody thinks they're the good guy, you don't have to stretch your imagination too far to know that, like, even the people that want to overthrow democracy think that they are doing that, right? They think that they are the good guy fighting this oppressive government. Like, it, th- that is a very familiar trope, and it's the story that we as people tell ourselves all the time, mm-hmm. I think one of the, th- the interesting things about this show, one of the many interesting things, is it basically lays out the formula. Here's when it's here's when it's morally right to strike back against a foe if they are unnecessarily brutal, if they cause the loss of rights, both ancient like natural rights, but also the law, lawful rights of a people, if they are colonizing, invading another people's lands mm. and and desecrating it and, <laughs> you know, uh, taking the natural resources, etc. Um, and if they're just running roughshod over privacy, over uh, due process, over all those kind of things. And Sounded sounded Again, pretty relevant. That is that is like a rad. That's a radical formulation to put into a Star Wars story and on Disney Plus. On Disney Plus, and I, it is amazing to watch. And you know it's working because I saw someone, I saw a tweet going around virally, like viral because people were disagreeing with it. But they were basically saying, "Oh, one of them." It was like a. Got to hear both sides type tweet where it was like, oh, you know, one of the most interesting things about this show is that it shows how both extremism oh. as 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 embodied by Cyril, but also by the rebels, by like Karis, are equally as bad. And it's like, I don't that's think absolutely that is what the show is about. No. <laughs> Absolutely not what it's saying. But the fact that that's a read that people are coming away that with. That shows that I your think, point is so on about the I completely agree I will say the one moment that I really love because I think that is so true right that like it's so about subjective read and to us it doesn't feel like that because of the way that we feel about things and the way that we feel like the story is going and the fact that Rogue One is incredibly radical but there is one moment in the eye that I feel like if you're not sure where the show stands when this unbelievable, just visually stunning effect of this kind of meteor shower, aurora borealis kind of situation, and the force, the 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 people who live in the area of the eye, whatever it is, the Tie Fighters just get cosmically smashed by yeah. the meteors, but the rebels get away. And to me, that is the the universe knows what the right side is in that moment. The force knows. This incredible spectacle knows. And I love that because I do think a lot of shows and a lot of storytelling would like to couch itself in the safety of both sides. Right. But I think in this right. show, they are telling you, you can read it however We're you not. want, but this right. is the right side and these are the heroes. And they're journey as we know it is going to lead to the heroics of these characters that you have loved for 40 years as the ultimate 
archetypal heroes. So no, their extremism is not equally as bad. It's just necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think we we don't think about an adversarial relationship as a relationship per se, the same way as like a friendship or mm-hmm. a romantic relationship is a relationship. But it is. You learn things from your yep. enemy. Your enemy does things that cause you like as the hero or the the protagonist to react and to respond to and mm-hmm. it is a conversation it's a communic- a two-way communication and you see that in this episode when you know the suggestion is made that maybe hey maybe we should tavel hey maybe we should uh, kill andor let's close that loop and make sure that that is closed that is that's something the empire would do but it's also Something that radicals would do, I think it's like a it's it shows you how when you're in a fight, you react to who you're fighting with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it is a really man, it's fun to think about. We're going to be talking about it more um, in the coming weeks. Up next, more Rings of Power. OK, Rings of Power, the finale, episode eight, Alloyed is a reference to the particular metallurgical technique used to uh, to forge, you know, just some cute, cute little, cute little jewelry. Nothing, nothing bad could come of those. Jewelry, everyone loves it. Just a yes. nice, nice, fun jewelry. You know, uh, written show about ring. <laughs> written by uh, our guest, who we are about to. Welcome to the episode, Jennifer Hutchinson and J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and directed by Wayne Che Yip. Folks, what, I mean, wow. Let me first thought, let's start with this. So uh, <laughs> we see the stranger and, uh, you know, the, the wanderers are around him and they are procra- proclaiming him to be their master. Who's their master? There was mas- their master is Sauron. And were you fooled by it? Were you fooled? That has got to be one of the best, like, fake out cold opens. It was good. The stranger's there and it's all so atmospheric. And he's in this, he's in Erin Galen, the Greenwood, which is also like the Mirkwood. So you've got a big Tolkien location and then you have them and they come and they just sort of so seriously, you know, the dwellers like Lord Sauron. And I have to say, look. My first thought was like, oh, I guess I was wrong. But then I was like, no, I got faked out. I was like, I got, and not only that, but like what I think is so fun about this is I bet that for a lot of people who don't sit and talk about this every week for hours, it probably felt very believable. Like it was, it was a huge moment. And you think, oh, did they kind of blow their magical load? But then we get to the truth of it. Which is like the most sus guy on the planet, aka Halbrand. Aka Halbrand. I will say, here's the thing: the the early fake out, and then uh, the subsequent scene where the nomad, uh, the dweller, and the other one are like, you know, uh, master, you've got to you've got to control your powers. Once you've once you uh, remember yourself, you'll you'll feel more, uh, you know, at one. That continued to fool me and so in retrospect having now watched the episode several times again i was willing to like let halbrand's increasingly sus shit go (laughs) in the intervening scenes because to your point 
he just gets a little too weird with it. With like, hey, uh, well, have you thought? Gosh, have you thought about? I don't know. Crazy thought. Combining other metals. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. Like the thing that I think they do so well with the stranger stuff is that is one of the most unexpectedly kind of emotional arcs this season and they give you that big scary fake out and then they kind of have this those intervening scenes where they're showing him losing control of his powers and he has to remember who he is and then he'll find out he's Sauron and he has to go back to Rune and you know and we've talked about like the blue wizards is that who these people are though they usually would be people who'd be stopping Sauron so these are probably like cult members and it's really interesting and then you get that great moment after we've seen Halbrand become even more sus and just constantly be popping up manipulating <laughs> yes. people talking about gifts which is when I realized yeah. what they were really doing you have that great moment where they go oh wait a minute he's not Sauron he's the other one you know and then they say he's Istari which is the the talking word for wizard so that's like a huge moment that we can kind of break down a little bit as we get to the end because they kind of play into some very fun stuff but before that Galadriel, poor old Galadriel. Oh, Galadriel. Some of the choices you you made in this episode. Get oh, she gets back to the Elven Kingdom. She has truly been seduced by the most handsome cast member of the Rings of Power. (laughs) And they they heal him, and everyone's like, wow, like so glad you brought this guy back to be healed. Apart from Gil Galad, who's like, "Mm, I don't know who this guy is. But but old Celebrimbor is very happy, especially when. Halbrand shows up and he's like, oh my God, it's you, Celebrimbor. I can't believe it. You are his head so just blows famous. Up. Yeah, his are, head just oh. swells up. And I thought, this guy sounds like he's doing some manipulations. <laughs> sounds like he's charming someone. And like almost instantly, he's just telling him how to forge the rings. And that was just blowing my mind. I could not believe sh- it. <laughs> now, when that happened, when he starts bringing up the, I have the alloys, and then, gosh, you know, that might, wouldn't that work? That's, that followed by the scene where Halbrand and Galadriel are out in the, in the, um, the gardens, and he's thanking her for saving his life and trying to put her at ease, you know, and she's, she, her, she's beginning to get a little freaked out, and then, but but everything seems more or less normal. And then, you know, he he puts his hand on her shoulder in a way that feels a little too familiar and whispers, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'd all but get, you know, they're talking about how uh, uh, Galadriel believed in him. Oh, yeah. And he's like, saw strength in and him, he's like, pushed I'll me to heights forget. that no one. And I'll, I'll make forget. sure no one else will either. And yeah, I was like, that, oh. That was when, at that moment, about 20 minutes in the episode, I'm like, okay, this guy's fucking. Yeah. When, it's him. It's him. He. There was the one that really got me. Like, I've done, we've d- talked so much about it and I've done so much reading and I've been writing so much about it that um, he, for me, the moment I knew that they were doing it and they didn't want us to be confused, they were saying, like, this is him. Um He's talking to old Celebrimbor and he says, yeah. you know, Celebrimbor's like, oh, how how can I, you know, thank you for like telling me how to forge these rings with this alloy and to put, you know, gold and, and silver to make it so much more powerful. And he's like, don't worry, 
it's a gift. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, because it, it's Anatar the giver, giver of yep. gifts. He's here giving you a gift. So, yeah, I found that. Uh, I just thought Charlie Vickers, who plays Halbrand, is just so good in this episode. Like, it's one of the most engrossing heel turns that it I've really seen is. in a long time. He and And what I really love here that is something that's so different from anything that we've seen before and that kind of leans into I was on um Doom Pod talking about legend recently mm-hmm. and something that someone in our Discord pointed out that was really cool about this episode that we'd kind of talked about legend fits into like labyrinth and like you know those stories that are about like the seduction of a young yes. complicated woman by evil right and that is very much what this story is but they do it they make it so much more textual because we then get this whole sequence where Sauron's basically like, look, let you can lead with me. You can be my queen. Right, hey, I, right, I we listen. can balance the dark and the light. We can we can make something good. And you see this shadow of the Sauron. Oh my god, that, I got Galadriel the chills. Side. Oh. And it was it, it is a very seductive deal. Hey, listen, you know, you're both playing to Galadriel's ego by saying, hey, you can. You're actually the thing that will bow. I want to be good. I want to be tethered to the light. You will tether me to the light. And then you will get the thing that you want, which you can't admit that you do want. And I know that you want it. You want the power and you'll get that. And then we will bring peace to Middle Earth. Uh, and you know, she's like, well, do you mean like, you mean rule Middle Earth? He's like, yeah. Like what's He's like, same thing. Same thing. (laughs) Is it not? Um, so I must ask you, after the seduction and props to Galadriel for for rejecting that. Yeah. Why does she then not tell them? Oh, that- OK. So I this is the thing that I just can't get my head around. Like, is this Galadriel's ego that she right. she has to be the one to kill Sauron, especially now that he has tricked her and betrayed her and, and kind of drawn her in? I read a great theory again our discord has really been given the the good stuff for lord of the rings and actually all the other like our house of the dragon uh, and and star wars channels are always amazing but some a couple of people in there were mentioning about how they thought that when galadriel came back it was actually sauron in disguise and i oh, love that theory That's because suddenly sauron's just gone but they yeah. were kind of generally the conversation ended up being where i lay on it which is it is Galadriel, but she is in this unbelievably compromised situation. And we kind of end that story with her keeping this deep secret from Elrond and Elrond having to be the one who's going to have to solve it because she's so ashamed of Do you think Elrond, what she's done. having read the scroll, the genealogy scroll, and sure, it's like, you know, but you can tell by the worried look on his face as the rings are being forged, um... You can tell that he knows from that scroll that, oh, there's there's no king of the Southlands. The last king of the Southlands died however many centuries ago. Who is this person, Halbrand? He, he may not know that Halbrand is Sauron, but he certainly knows that Halbrand is not the person who he was purporting to be. Mm-hmm. And also... Now he's fucking gone. Yeah. Moments after Galadriel was found, like half drowned in the river, um, I, I wonder what he will do next yeah. season and why they would. This is the other thing. Like you know, uh, 
Elrond has all season been like, we have to tell people about what's going mm-hmm. on with the mm-hmm. tree, about the loss of light. We have to like this. And then at the beginning of this episode, when they're when they're really failing to to come up with a solution to all this, he's like, we have to we have to tell everybody what that we failed. It would be really it would be a fascinating conflict if now having this piece of mm-hmm. even more sensitive information that he then decides to keep it yes. because of his relationship with Galadriel. I, I think that's what they're leading to because you get that moment where she doesn't believe that he is Elrond. She thinks yeah. he might be Sauron and she asks him to prove it and then she tells him that she's made this terrible mistake. So I wonder, we kind of already had that uh, the episode, I think it was episode four, when Elrond was trying to work out what was going on in the mines and yeah. work out what was going on with Celebrimbor. So everyone was like, that was like Elrond as Columbo. And I wonder if we're going to get more kind of detective Elrond, but who's also trying to save his oldest friend from... Because really, Galadriel, this has not cured her obsession with vengeance, which Absolutely actually not. brought her to this moment, which is what's so heartbreaking. It's actually made it far worse and far more all-consuming and far more isolating. So... I'll be very interested to see. And I'm also interested in the timeline because this really mixes up like a lot of what we kind of knew. And 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 in the same way, even though um, when we talk about House of the Dragon, we're talking about what are canonically unreliable narrators, right? And different right. versions of history. Tolkien often changed stuff himself. So that's right. kind of what we're contending with here. But this is very interesting because like you mentioned, you know, what I kind of love, I love this on a narrative level. The, the, this whole show is called, you know, Rings of Power. And the whole first season was this deep character study. And at the, in the final episode, they were like, boom, three of the rings have been forged. <laughs> I, I personally very much enjoyed that. But in the books, the elven rings are not forged first. Right. They are forged as the, as the last rings that are never corrupted by Sauron. So I'll be very interested to kind of see how the other rings get forged, how Sauron, whether he will reappear in his giver of gifts kind of form to other people, whether we will see Charlie Vickers continue to be the visualization of Sauron, which I think is really interesting to have a human Sauron, but how long will that survive, you know? And it's really interesting. I love the freedom that they're taking with this kind of stuff. And this this leads also to... um, the, the big stranger question, which is kind of the other big question of the episode. Oh, also, by the way, just so we can say it, we said Halbrand was Sauron. So we, we were, were right. right. <laughs> we were we were not the only, there were lots no, of other no. people there as well. I but, think everyone uh, felt it. Yeah, we felt it. We it, felt it. It was, it was yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Like we said, by the time we were covering the penultimate episode, we were basically like, this is too narratively rich for it to yes, not be to the not case. Be That's him. how good the writing is. This idea that you're so consumed with vengeance that you would bring your own downfall by in, by taking up with the person that you're trying to hunt down, which is so interesting. But yeah, the, the timeline, the other timeline thing is in the canon of Lord of the Rings, as we know it, the wizards or the Istari, they did not come until the third, the thousandth age of the the thousandth year of the third age which is about like three thousand years after this i think this is around 1500 um so this changes that but again this is a 
essentially stories told through oral history or an idea of an oral history tradition, there's no reason that wizards could not come back in the third age and people think it's the first time they've ever arrived. So, you know, we see the stranger, we learn that he is good, that he is not Sauron, and he has this connection to the Harfoot, something that one of our commenters that we shouted out on the show, you know, pointed out seemed very similar to Gandalf and we became very we became very invested in that theory and it does seem that that is what the show wants us to think because as he and Nori decide they're going to set off on this adventure together and she does it with the Harfoot's blessing which is so magical he says to her if in doubt Eleanor Brandyfoot always follow your nose and that is like a very famous Gandalf line from the Peter yep. Jackson movies that he says to Mary in Fellowship of the Ring. So whether or not he is Gandalf, we don't know. But they want us to think right they now so, that he is Gandalf. Absolutely, they want us. To, I mean, it's him. It's Saruman or Radagast or two I, other. I love but the idea got, of it being Radagast just because yeah, that would be the nature powers. It seems like it could the be. The brown cloak. Yeah, but but then again... In the age that we live in, right? That's the I thing. feel like Gandalf feels very natural. It's Gandalf, and it, let's be real. It like be. it's with it's, he's <laughs> he's making friends with the Hobbit. The only thing, something I think they could do potentially that could add to their kind of really in-depth character-based narratives that kind of add this context and emotion to these characters we love. It would be very interesting if he was Saruman. And the reason that he has these similarities to Gandalf is because of a closeness that they have in the future. And Gandalf kind of learns mm-hmm. these quotes from him or learns these behaviors or learns this love for the for the half horse. But let's be real, it's probably Gandalf. <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah. I want to back up for a second. Uh, and here is my here is my read on what is going through Galadriel's mind at the end of this episode as the Mm. rings are coming out and she's decided oh halbrand where is he i don't know but like let's just like never deal with him again why you must never treat with him you must never treat with him why uh don't worry about it don't worry about it let's focus on the rings (laughs) i here is my thought i think you're absolutely right to focus on this centuries-long feud that she has this mission of revenge to avenge her brother and mm-hmm. kill Sauron. And I think in her mind, she understands that she's made a terrible, terrible mistake in giving Sauron access to knowledge, to power, to... To uh, healing. To, the, to heal, to healing, healing him, not know. letting him die. We don't know like, how get, powerful that was, if it's going to affect him in the future, like his his viability of life. You know, did she make him more powerful? Introducing him to this newly discovered substance of Mithril, uh, introducing him to Celebrimbor, their most, the elves, like, most fantastic genius, forging the rings with his advice. All of these things are terrible mistakes. And I think that in her mind, she's thinking, okay, well, if this comes out very rightfully, the High King, Elrond, and everyone else will say, okay, that's it. You're off Sauron hunting dude you're not you're too close to it <laughs> you done. can't do this it's done look what has happened look, mm-hmm. look at everything that has happened you can't you're too close to it your emotions are too hot you can't do this anymore and I think 
one, that's exactly what they should tell her. And two, she's just she won't have that. She wants to kill him. She wants to be Mm -hmm. the one to destroy him. And that's why she didn't say anything. No, I think you're totally right, because also think about it. Yeah. Isn't this always the beginning of every like Columbo episode, every terrible (laughs) thriller film or every the outcome of any murder mystery is like, oh, why did you kill that person? Because they knew the thing that somebody else couldn't know. And if she can kill Sauron, nobody else ever needs to know that it was Halbrand. Because to everyone else, those are still two different people. She can get away with this terrible thing that she did and still achieve the one thing that she wants more than anything else, which is to kill Sauron. You know, I think it's so interesting. And also, like, I love the the end moment where Sauron's, like, walking to Mordor is, like, so zeros. Like, uh, Ro, who's one of the great editors at Nerdist, made this mashup where it was like playing Evanescence, Wake Me Up Inside. And it like it like shows the eyeball spinning and then you pull out on him. And I was like, okay, that was actually perfect though. I know this it, is not an anachronistic perfect. needle drop, but I would have, in this case, I would have allowed it. And it's also that wonderful like uh, mirror image of the iconic images from the Peter Jackson films of the eye on the top of uh, Baradour. Mm-hmm. But now it's his actual yeah. eye reflecting the the flames of Mount Doom. It was that was also they had a so lot of, good. They had a lot of fun with movie stuff and like because also what's the famous line? You know, a Boromir, one cannot simply walk into Mordor. It's like this <laughs> right, motherfucker yeah. just did. He just, he just walked, walked right in. Just walked well, right in. to be fair, I mean, to be fair, it wasn't full. Like construction still underway. Yeah, it's not yeah, like yeah. the walls you know, are not up. Uh, but I, question. The dweller, the nomad, and the ascetic—the the the three beings who, um, who mistook the stranger who we believe to be Gandalf for Sauron. Who do we think that they are? Okay, so there is like very small amounts written about like basically people who worship the occult. Cults of Melkor, cults of Morgoth, like people who worship the dark arts and wanted it to come back. And it's very, there's like very little written about them, but I think that is generally what people assume them to be. They're people who are desperate for the dark magic or the dark lord to come back. I I find it most interesting that they talked about like Rune, because that is a place that's very heavily connected to wizardry Mm -hmm. in, in Tolkien. So I wonder if they are, we've seen them behave very evilly, so I'm not saying that they're neutral, like burning the Harfoots, but I wonder if it's less about an obsession with dark arts and and more about magic as a whole or wanting this magic, this powerful magic to come back. But I think that is going to be a huge part of season two because even though he did kill them and turn them into cool, like, skeleton beasts and then as, like, they, they were, like, they look kind of like ringwraiths and then, yeah. you know... Saul said he's, and after that, you know, they transform into moths, which Saul like pointed out that Gandalf has used in the past. So I think it kind of leads in. to carry messages and stuff. Yeah. And even though those three, RIP to those wizards or, or, you know, cult members, even though they are dead, they are surely not the only people. And I think we can assume that whatever Nori and the stranger find in Rune or whoever they come across in the way, they will likely be connected to yeah. that trio of, of 
strange magicians. I wonder at what point, because as you know, we're seeing the stranger begin to return to himself. I wonder how that plays out over the course of the second season. Mm-hmm. Will he remember his previous life right away, or is it that, or is that going to kind of like unfurl over the course of the season? That'll be re- really interesting to see. I do, I do wonder. I did get a slight feeling at the end of this. You remember, obviously, this is like reading the opening of Ask the Maester. You remember the end of season one of Game of Thrones, Jason. <laughs> yes, I do. Right. Yes. So you remember the feeling, whether you read, read the books or not, of thinking the show was about one person, Ned Stark, and, and learning it wasn't, yeah. right? I did get a kind of inkling that the Rings of Power may have a five, you know, we follow Galadriel, we follow that compulsion that vengeance and i think that is going to be a story that plays a part but i do wonder if the bigger five season arc is following gandalf to becoming gandalf Mm. again following the stranger on that journey that's a character people love it's a long-term exploration you get to bring in all these different worlds and areas of middle earth and you know i think a lot of people would love to see like where the Shire began and things. I think that could be a way to tie it back to these stories that people already know and love. So I, I think that that would be very interesting. I, I found myself thinking about the temptation of Galadriel from the movies mm-hmm. and how it's down to the wording and the pitch that Sauron makes her and the vision of the the raft where they initially met each other. Um, and thinking how... One, it made sense that Galadriel really wasn't more involved in the fight <laughs> during the movies because you just yeah. – you can't – it's rightfully – She's Whether the truth came out or whatever the case may be, I think she and maybe the people around her made the very wise decision that, like, let's keep Galadriel out of this one. Um, <laughs> that said, it feels like secrets are – Sauron's tool. That's Mm -hmm. one thing I've realized Mm -hmm. from this. Everybody who is trying to keep a secret, an important secret that people should know, is ends up subtly, whether they realize it or not, compromised. Like the way, again, that that moment where Sauron, uh, where the uh, you know Halbrand, then Halbrand leans in and and says, you know, and I'll make sure everybody else knows it. And but in this way that feels confiding, like oh, this is between you and me. And then of course, Galadriel and Elrond have their own little promise. There's something about that 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 powers Sauron. And I I just wonder how long Elrond can keep mm-hmm. the secret of of what he knows about Halbrand, considering all the other secrets that he knows that he has been lobbying all season long for people to know about, to share, to let other people know. No, I think you're onto something really, really deep there that kind of links to one of the big, you know, this was an episode that's so focused on Galadriel, on Halbrand, on The Stranger, on Nuri, on Elrond, that we leave the Southlanders who are, you know, going to make this new home somewhere that's not Mordor. We don't see them. We don't see Arondir, Theo, Bronwyn. And we also yeah. don't see Durin, right? The mm-hmm. big other major character who we need to know how those rings are going to get forged, the Dwarven rings. 
And yes. guess who has a deep secret that could easily be compromised? It's Durin, who's keeping yep. the mining of the Mithril secret from his father. I think you're really onto something. I saw, this is going to sound like a weird diversion, but I saw Halloween Ends uh, this, I this week. It. I, I watched it too the I, other day. I, 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 I I'm sorry, I was, I was a fan, but that's because I like weird later stage sequels. I think they swung for the fences. But aside from that, it reveals something really funny, which is... At one point, it seems like Michael Myers like gets his powers from stabbing people. Like he's really <laughs> yeah. weak, but then he stabs yeah, people yeah. and he gets really yeah, strong. Yeah. And I love this idea that for Sauron, it's secrets. It that's what powers him up. That's what enables him to manipulate people, to corrupt people. I think like Celebrimbor, his darkest secret was he didn't know how to use the mithril. He'd made that's everyone. Right do these terrible right. things he'd he tricked elrond he'd betrayed people he'd made promises but he didn't know how to forge it Halbrand, aka sauron knew how to manipulate that he knew how to manipulate galadriel and i think that you're right this notion of secrets and how you can use them to manipulate people or compromise them or take advantage of them is very key to who he is and I, the, okay, so what this is the, I think the other big question that season two is probably going to have to start with. Halbrand, he's wearing his cloak. He's walking to Mordor. <laughs> yes. It's very dramatic. Adar is there with his like orc children thinking he killed this guy. At least we think so. What do you think that showdown's going to look like? I think that that is going to be, my sense is that's going to be a big part of season two is this, yeah. is this dark lord that could have been in Adar. You know, mm-hmm. a different kind of of evil, one who honestly is more self-absorbed. You know, like uh, Sauron has that thing that, you know, I, ke- I keep coming back to the, the first words of the series. Nothing is evil in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sauron's pitch is a good one, which is. Hey, I'm going to bring peace to this war-torn land. I'm going to bring, you know, like I'm going to it's the classic, uh, bring stability right? the classic to the chaos. Yeah, it's like. And that sounds that sounds good. And I think as we watch the subtle seduction, the manipulation of various characters through this, it's always through their desire to do something good. Adar is fascinating because Adar, obviously not a not a good creature, not a good being, mm-hmm. but wants primarily, it's so it seems, to just to not be involved in the larger politics of Middle Earth. He's not looking to, like, rule. He's just looking for some real estate for himself and the creatures that he helped create. Yeah, who, by the way, were, like, horrible victims in their own right, from what it sounds like. So I, I think he is such an interesting, complex person who I wonder if that will be something that enables Sauron to compromise him. Because Sauron can say, oh, I I promise you can have the things that you want for your children. I'm sorry for the mistakes I made before. Basically making the same offer that he made to Galadriel, you know, but in a different way. We can lead together. We can make a safe haven for your children, blah, blah, blah. He makes, you know, he's the promiser. He's the giver of gifts. He tells you what you want to hear and then, you know, takes it away. But I am just so excited Joseph Maul is so good as Adar and Charlie Vickers is so good as Halbrand. I really want to see that moment when Adar knows that he did not 
kill Sauron. Unless, what if our other theory was right and they were actually in on it together? Because that will also be an incredible moment. That is the thing. So here's where I, if they are not in it together, Adar feels like the one character in this show that, strangely, would be, Sauron would not be able to take him on directly because Adar clearly if if the if he did strike Sauron down the first time mm-hmm. if that's true then the manipulate he'll be he'll be wise to the things that mm-hmm. Sauron does so if that is true if they're not in it together i see Sauron picking off followers or gathering followers before mm. really trying to challenge Adar at all unless I wonder if he slips into into Mordor as Halbrand, yes, as another of these humans, as another of these humans who have decided to cast their lot with Adar, you know, after being rejected by the elves and treated like didn't second know. class citizens. Yeah, he doesn't know. So I wonder oh. if he goes as this kind of like, oh, I'm this lower status. I'm just like a regular human like the rest of these your human followers and slowly, slowly, slowly begins to like take him down from the inside that way. I wonder I I wonder if it's going to be something like that. Because Adar will be you know, whether or not Adar believes that he's fully finished off Sauron, if indeed again that is true, you have to feel like he'd be very sensitive to any kind of hint that Sauron would be back. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I totally agree. And did you was there like a moment now that you've watched it a few times, which is obviously what we always have to do to make sure we're like, <laughs> is, is there a moment that really stands out from the finale as that like big wow moment that kind of you think is going to stick with you? Oh, God. You know, see, it's it's weird, but like. The two moments, one seeing Galadriel and Sauron's reflection in the water where yeah, he's in the full armor so and good. she's like, I, because. Again, I, I, I got to admit, you you know who Sauron is. You know what he wants. You know what he's going to do. But at the same time, that sounds good. And mm-hmm. from from Galadriel's perspective, it must have been, even though she's filled with just a burning desire to kill this man, it must have seemed tempting because now yeah. you can just be done with this. Um, and so that was chilling and then second and then seeing the rings seeing the rings one get forged and two when they were done with the jewels set Mm -hmm. in them how beautiful they look the way you can look at them and know who is going to own which ring almost like they seem to embody the personalities of the of the three characters who are going to have them um that for me were were the moments what about you yeah the for me, I, I love like a, a dark seduction story and definitely like, especially when I was younger and I didn't necessarily understand how analogous most villains were to like fascists. I definitely was like a bad, I was like, oh, I like the bad guys. Like, oh, oh, this like, you know, Kylo Ren. That wasn't one of mine. If I was like 15, it would have been, but like that kind of archetype. I loved that moment because like you said, they played it so well. One, the visual is chilling. Two, it's chilling. I just love the way that Sauron sells it. He makes it so believable. He makes it so tempting. And for a minute, you're just like, well, maybe that would be safer for the elves. Maybe there's a version where he doesn't do what he did before. And that's that's really powerful. 
Well, up next, let's talk to uh, Rings of Power writer Jennifer Hutchinson. Now we're absolutely thrilled to welcome Jennifer Hutchinson, one of the writers behind Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and one of the writers of the series finale, to the program. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, This is so exciting. Um, I guess, first of all, this is obviously a show has been uh, years in the making. What what, What does it feel like now that the episodes are out Season one in the books, this multi-year process has come to its natural stopping point, at least for this chapter. How do you feel? Uh, I feel it's such a complex feeling um, (laughs) because, yes, it felt like forever. It was almost four years to the day that the room started, like that it premiered from when the room started. Yeah. And I it was this secret feeling like I've been doing work. Please. I know there's stuff happening Um, (laughs) uh, that it felt like such a relief. But then it felt like it just went by so fast. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that was also the thing. Um, No, it's amazing. It's wonderful being able to talk about you know, what the story was and and not <laughs> yeah. have to keep secrets. I didn't even tell my husband anything. Um, and so I can actually talk to him without making sure I'm really locked down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you talk about that. I mean, obviously, we've just been talking about the finale, which, you know, came out last week and was just so wonderful and kind of really answered a lot of the questions in a way that felt very satisfying. So, when it comes to building in those secrets, you you wrote episode two, you introduced Halbrand. What was it like crafting that journey and then keeping it a secret for, you know, four years? <laughs> um, it was, it was, I loved it. It was really fun. And I'm so excited that I got to introduce Halbrand and then introduce Sauron. Like it just, it worked out so well to be able to to write both those scenes, the first scene with Galadriel and then the, the reveal scene with Galadriel and really hold those kind of, you know, together in my heart. Um, And then it was just about really crafting Halbrand's story through the season and Mm. making sure that we were really understanding who Halbrand was. And and it felt like this is a real person, a real guy. Um, But then also, if anybody goes back and watches the season again, knowing he's Sauron, that you can see and be like, okay, this is Sauron. Are, what are these decisions he's making? Does this make sense for <laughs> yes. who he is at the time? You know, because you don't want it to be like, wait, Sauron would never do that, you know? Um, and so it was really a balance. You know, we had a few POV scenes that was just him. Uh, and that was really tricky, making sure that it felt right for both characters. Yeah. You know? uh, a line that really stood out to us, and it's the first line in the series is nothing is evil in the beginning, which felt like the theme of this series in, in a lot of ways. How, uh, when did that idea emerge of, oh, we're going to show how even the most evil thing can start mm-hmm. with a sincere instinct to try and do some something good? Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty early on, I mean, you know, the sort of where Sauron is in the Second Age until he pops up, you know, and says, let's make some rings. You know, it, it talks a little <laughs> bit. It's, right? Uh, it's a mystery. It's a mystery, really. And it talks about after the war, you know, he repented, but he was also prideful. There was that mix between him, within him, and then he kind of disappears. Uh, so it's really about, like, what is the story that we could tell about this character 
that is more that is more complex than I am a bad guy and I want to do bad things. Um, and we talked a lot about the concept of, you know, good being a choice, you know, something mm. that you choose to do with each decision, not something that you are. Um, and the same goes for bad. And so really, when we were crafting his story, that was uh, really a, a thing that we were thinking about a lot, sort of good as a choice. It's it's who you choose to be, which was also mirrored in, you know, the, Nori and the stranger and kind mm-hmm. of what she says to him. Um, and uh, it was it was nice to play that out. I always love that complexity of you're right. Like nothing is evil in the beginning and nobody is only good or only Mm -hmm. bad. There's always Mm -hmm. some complexity in there. Yeah. And the really wonderful reflection of how Brand's story that you got to explore this season was Galadriel, who I just, the writing with the two of them, I mean, we got to the, the penultimate episode and we were just like, it's too narratively rich for him to not be sour on at this point (laughs) because like she, she's been so consumed by this need for revenge that she has welcomed in evil to her door and she has you know become that corrupted elf that that Adar kind of spoke to her and 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 told her that she was could you sort of talk about their intertwined journeys because that balance of making Mm. both characters completely engaging in their own rights but having to have them as reflections of each other is must have been such a difficult balance to strike it was, um, but it was also really great to have both of them have really distinct journeys and, and points of view that that weren't really in service of each other, but but were, you know, intertwined. Um, you know, so much of Galadriel was like, how do you, what happens to you after that much war, that much loss, you know, the you know, I mean, now we would say PTSD, like, like, how, how do you Mm -hmm. stop? And really, that was her journey of like, how do I stop and and kind of reaching a point where it's like, is it an external thing? Or is it an internal thing? Um, And that struggle, and Halbrun's character was really about I've given up. That's how I like, that's how I stopped. I just I've checked out, I'm I've run away. That's it. And she's, you know, he's running away, she's running toward. And so finding a way that they're kind of helping each other on that journey. Like, like he's helping direct her focus while she's, you know, kind of like pulling him back into the world. <laughs> yeah. um, not, you know, maybe not a good idea, but like, so, <laughs> so it was, it was making sure that they really are coming from kind of opposite places. But uh, the core of like what they're dealing with is like, they went through this in- incredibly long devastating war from different sides and and mm-hmm. how would they how would they react uh differently to that Galadriel's choice after her temptation in this episode <laughs> is so fascinating to unpack in that why does she decide in that moment to not be you know when when Elrond's like where's where's Halbrand oh listen we just can't ever deal with the, we're not treating with him ever again if he does show <laughs> right. up by don't the worry way. about it it's, it's and done. let's move on let's yeah. keep it pushing guys um take us into we have our own ideas uh, d- mostly related to her centuries long obsession with getting revenge and how important that is to her and and her possible feeling like well if i tell people what happened 
I won't be able to get that revenge because they will say, <laughs> well, you're off. You're off Sauron duty from now on. Right. Um, right. Um, but what would take us into her into her thinking in that moment? You know, as she's watching oh, yeah. these things being forged, they were they <laughs> under the direct influence of this person who she now knows to be the Dark Lord and not telling people. Yeah, I just had this image of, uh, you know. <laughs> so like turn in your badge and your gun you're off the case um yeah. <laughs> which is definitely the vibe um yeah so i think obviously i think so much of it is open to people's interpretation i i love people bringing their own read into things um for me a lot part of it really is her feelings uh one of what did she do like complicity right. and like yeah. guilt and and mm-hmm. shame and and you know like questioning everything about herself, but that's also uh, kind of in contrast to, I think that she still has that feeling of like, I have to be the one to fix this. I, mm-hmm. It really, yeah. it really mirrors right. what Sauron's saying of like, I can, I'm the one who can fix the world with you. Like there's a reason why that's tempting, tempting for her because she really believes like it's my responsibility to fix this. Um, and I have to, I can't necessarily let other people into the inner workings, you know? Yeah. And you just mentioned, like, kind of the way people read into the show and the interpretation. You've said before that, like, your sweet spot as a writer is creating opportunities for fans to theorize and engage. And obviously with this show, this was, like, the ultimate version of that. I mean, I was (laughs) covering it at IGN, so every week I'm coming up with stuff. You had so many different readings, so many people coming up with theories, trying to work things out and just engaging with the show in a really passionate way. What was that like for you? Uh, I Very gratifying. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of so many works and particularly genre works. And there are so many things that I would watch or read and or play. And I what I was getting out of it was not necessarily what the people who made it intended, but sure. it created a space to like really connect uh, yeah. in a way that was personal for me. So seeing people be able to do that with a show that I was part of is is wonderful. Like so much of what I do is wanting to connect to people and make people feel seen and, and not alone. And when people are, you know, some of it is I'm just coming up with theories, but there's also a lot of it of like, you know, the relationship between Poppy and Nori and, and really reading mm-hmm. kind of their own life into that. And I, I love that stuff. Um, and then the, like, who's Sora and who's this person? Who's that? That's just fun because, I don't know, I love talking to my friends about theorizing yeah. about shows that I watch. So the idea that, like, people are having fun doing that, you know, like that added value of the show. It's like, it's not just watching the show. It's also you get to talk to your friends about it. Like, I think as a writer, I mean, why why else would we do this? Yeah. Um, thinking about, you know, the the... The kind of feeling that Lord of the Rings, both the books, uh, including The Hobbit and the movies, of course, give people. This show was so adept at really capturing Mm -hmm. those core feelings of friendship, you know, whether it's the Harfoots or whether it's Elrond and Durin and that feeling of adventure, um, the feeling of your choices really mattering, like making the hard choice and not the easy choice and that and that mattering. How? How much did you talk about and think about like boiling those kind of things down into, mm. you know, the kind of elemental pieces that you would then kind of lay down in this show so so that it felt because it really just feels so of a piece yeah. with th- with the books and and the movies. 
Yeah, which we obviously, you know, we read from the books every day and, and we were all heavily inspired by the movies as well. Um, it was, I remember early on, like really when we came in, you know, Patrick J.D. saying, you know, what is what does Lord of the Rings mean to you? You know, what is, when you think about a story, what kind of story would you tell in this world? Um, and then really coming up with so many people were like, you know, really the really, the friendships and, you know, even the smallest among us can, can change the world. And which to me is really the core so much mm-hmm. of what Tolkien yeah. say, was saying. Um, and really wanting to lean into that, you know, his work was so inspired, you know, so heavily influenced by his time, particularly in the war and those relationships he built uh, with with his, you know, comrades. Um, and really bringing that in was important, that feeling of like those connections you make with people in like the hardest times, you know, the times when everything seems lost. It's really that hope and connection comes through our friendships and our relationships with each other. Yeah, that's one of my, I I was such a huge fan of the Harfoots and kind of, I remember the first episode, the moment that really got me was with the food and the blackberries, those cozy parts (laughs) of, of Tolkien are, are such a important part to so many people what is it like, you know, Jason talked about boiling it down and the importance of getting it right. How is it to balance these things that feel so tonally different? The slow moments, the the food, the coziness, the friendship, the smaller, what seem to be smaller stakes with the arrival of Sauron, with these kind of epic <laughs> yeah. adventures, men falling from the sky. How do you go about balancing these kind of different vital parts of the story? Well, my favorite stories are always the ones that feel like even in these fantastic worlds, because I said, as I said, I'm a big genre fan that feel kind of of the of our world that feel grounded. And I always say that, like, even in the worst times in my life, there's always been light. There's always been, you know, like just something really funny happens or like a a meal or like some some moment of connection. Uh, So for me, it really was like, how, how would life feel? You know, like it's, it's not just one thing, it's all these things. And also, you know, when you're doing something super intense, like you need that breather of, Mm -hmm. you know, like something comforting, something like, uh, core that, that, that everyone can kind of relate to more, you know, the elves are, they're, they're so, you know, um, bird's eye view of everything. And so having mm-hmm. the Harfoots and I would say having the dwarves as well yeah. and the hu- and even the humans where it's much more of like a, a focused kind of world um, is really what helps ground it. Uh, I love stuff too that's like kind of tonally you, you move around um, and having having worked on my previous show, uh, A Better Call Saul, that does a lot of tonal shifts as well between <laughs> larger storytelling and, and more personal stories. And so I, I felt uniquely suited um, in that regard as well. Thinking about your your career from The Breaking Bad, The Strain, Better Call Saul, now uh, Rings of Power. Rings of Power has such a specific kind of uh, melody and rhythm to the language. All, all, you know, whether it's the elves, the humans, the dwarves, whoever, they, they all have a, such a specific music to the way they speak. Uh, how did you go about capturing that? And was there a moment where you're like, okay, I think, I think we've got it. I think we've, I think it feels like Tolkien. Uh, yeah, it was very, that was maybe one of the most challenging parts um, mm-hmm. because I've always written contemporary 
um, for the most part. And I, my dialogue style is very like plain spoken, grounded, you know. Uh, And so that was definitely hard for me. The way I really attacked the script was writing it kind of in plain language in the Mm -hmm. first go through. So I had the meaning down and then getting, finding my way into those voices. And then once Patrick and JD, you know, were giving us the the pilot script and really uh, giving us the example of kind of where that dialogue sweet spot was, uh, that gave us more of a target to hit. And that was constantly evolving as the show went on. Um, It's funny, there was a moment where I felt like I had kind of unlocked something and this is going to sound silly, but... um, with the elves, the inclination with the elves, the temptation is just make them sound very fancy all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and but, but, but that can be essentially meaningless. And it made me think of when I was first writing Gus Fring uh, on Breaking Bad <laughs> because I would write him overly formal. And mm. that was the first note I got was like, that's not, that's not who he is. And I realized it's not that he's super formal. It's that he doesn't waste a word. And, mm. you know, and the elves, they say a lot of words for sure, but there really is intention behind everything they're saying. And mm. I started like thinking of Gus when I would write the elves and it, it helped me kind of reach that like, because he was also working from like an overhead view of the world. Yes. Like he was mm-hmm. a long-term planner, you know, uh, as the elves are. And that really helped me unlock that. Um, obviously they don't sound the same, but the vibe was very, like, it was, it it allowed me to feel like, okay, maybe I can actually, I think I can do this. Um, and, and it, and it started to click in more. Speaking of unexpected, like transferable skills from the world of like Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, (laughs) those are stories like, which a lot of the heart of them and the kind of, the investment comes from these unexpected relationships and friendships that kind of define the arcs of of the characters. Was that something that you felt helped you when it came to shaping some of the relationships that we see in this show? Because the ones that have really broken out are those unexpected, Stranger and Nori, Elrond and Durin, obviously. There's a tradition of that in Lord of the Rings, but in the canon, it's unexpected. They're not supposed to be friends. Galadriel and Halbrand. Was that something that you kind of felt like you were unexpectedly suited to as well. Um, yes. And, and it's funny because, uh, you know, Nori and the stranger and, and Elrond and Durin, you know, I also introduced Elrond and Durin storyline in two. And those were, those were like my most comfortable places to be yeah. when I was mm-hmm. writing it. And, and those actually flowed for me really naturally, you know, the way, the way those, especially Poppy and Nori, like that's just me and that's just me and my best friend. So, um, <laughs> yes, in a lot of ways, yes, in a lot of ways, uh, I totally brought so much of that character work and the relationship work from that world, from the sort of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul world of taking, like looking just like a step deeper into those mm-hmm. relationships and, and finding ways of like, as you said, how do people who are very opposed seem very opposed? What's the what's the common thread between them and, and how do you find that Um I just love character and doing like kind of deep dives on character and being able to do that in this world was really nice. The moments that we were able to do that because it is a show and not movies. Um, it did make me feel like, oh, okay, here I am. This is, this is my skill set, bringing it <laughs> over. Like I could do the other stuff too, but this is really such a comfortable place to be is, is just 
figuring out what makes them tick and 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 the true like strength of friendship and and how strong those feelings are, you know, sometimes even more than yeah. romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. So and that really I mean all of that stuff rings so true yeah. watching the show. Um I think people sometimes who who, you know, watch TV and and you know, see the credits roll, maybe don't understand how collaborative a, a storytelling form television really is so like as you're you know, you're breaking story you're writing the scripts and then all of a sudden your your cast starts coming in how does it begin <laughs> to change as you begin adding this amazing cast of of mm-hmm. talented performance to this production uh yeah it is uh, it is always a, a fascinating part of the process of like a thing that's lived in your head and your or your you know the writer's room had this sort of collective yeah. group uh, kind of sending it out into the world and and having it be put on his feet. It's always I. It's always a, a great part of the process when the actors come in because they bring that interpretation and because they're focused really solely on one character. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're able to really kind of like get into them and 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 sort of bring that point of view um, into it. And you learn sort of the rhythm of the way that they talk and and kind of. Uh, how they embody that character. And it definitely informs um, what you're writing. You know, when we wrote season one, we had not really cast people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going forward, when you're writing in season two, and this is like all shows, you're able to hear them. You're able to like in- visualize the actor in that place. And it makes it easier to to write them because you know who you're writing. Um, and that's been every show. You start to just hear them in your head mm-hmm. um, as opposed to being like, what would this person say here? It's like you, you hear that actor, uh, you know, telling you. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like, I guess, the nat- sort of as a natural extension on that, how does it feel you've had this thing that's in your head, you see, you know, production, casting. How does it feel when a moment, say, this is a moment we were just talking about a lot um, when we were talking about the finale, but... You know, you write a moment that is so vital, like when Sauron shows Galadriel what their future could be, this him in his armor and her standing next to him. We're we're both like obsessed with that moment. What did it feel like for you? You write it, the show is made. How does it feel to see it come to life within the context of the world when you see the finished episode? Uh, Amazing. Um, It's it's. getting to see the show in its final form, because even if I saw cuts, obviously not everything was on screen yet because there was so many wonderful visual effects work to be done. Um, It it was incredible. I feel like the, what, you know, the directors and all of the artists and and craftspeople on the show and um, everybody who worked on the show, they just brought such an amazing level of work and, and interpretation and just life to the show. So seeing those things and how much, you know, obviously you have a vision in your head and then when you see it and it's like so much better than you could have ever imagined, that's incre- that's incredibly gratifying. And that, and especially that scene with that final confrontation and, oh, and that yeah. shot that you talk about, which when I'm like not worried about posting spoilers is going to be my Twitter banner because it's just, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful shot. Um, and it encapsulates what he's, what we were trying to do. Like yeah. that's the thing visually. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's the story. And we'd always talked about the reflection and he would show her um, that was, that was in the story we were telling in the script, but to see how they pulled it off uh, 
is is a totally different thing. And and I every episode that I watched, I felt that seeing them and being like, oh my god, look at Cousin Doom! Like, look at these mm-hmm. things! Like, look at this! Look at these costumes! You know, like you just you just feel in that world, and and you know, it is it's so gratifying, and and it just it made me very happy. <laughs> um, take us into the stranger fake out because it is so <laughs> well timed. That's and so it good. Seemed, it it just seemed to have such a it's anticipatory energy, understanding that okay, by now the fans, the audience is going to be in a fever pitch, wondering who these who these two men are, Halbrand and and the stranger, uh, wondering which one of them might be Sauron. Uh, take us into the decision to to throw that curveball in essentially at the top of the episode. So it's such a great cold open. (laughs) I know. Um, Yes. So what I like about that kind of structure is that I feel like it really is serving the stranger's story. And it has that Mm. sort of added bonus of being that red herring of like, oh, wait, I guess he saw it. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were like, it's too early in the episode. Like, this can't (laughs) be. Like, there's no, there's no way. There's no way. Um, but what it does is it really serves, to me, it serves a stranger story of them saying, like, you know, his story is such a mirror of Halbrand, Sauron, mm-hmm. Halrons, yeah. is that, you know, like, you're bad. You're bad. You're a danger. That's what he's been worried about. Am I a danger? Am I peril? And then these these mystics say, you are. You're, you're, the, right. you're Lord Sauron. You are a bad guy. And so you see him kind of absorb that. And then in that, in that moment with Nori and, and the Harfoots when they come to rescue them and she has that thing of like, no, you choose, you choose who you are. Um, I feel like if you hadn't had that moment at the top mm-hmm. of the episode where it was like confirmation, you're the bad guy, then I don't think that necessarily would have worked as well. Um, and then it just has, like I said, that sort of added bonus of, of throwing you off a little bit. Um, but no, I thought I really, you know, cause, cause Galadriel's telling Halbrin, you're a good guy. You're a good guy, you know? And then he's like, "Mm, I mean, am I? Uh, so, so I think it worked. I think it works really well. And then you start the episode with the stranger, you're Sauron, and then you end the episode with Halbrin. Hey, I'm Sauron. So. Yeah, it's, it's such a great reflection and such an enjoyable moment and i i love it because you mentioned that you're like you know a lot of people know like prestige tv it's too early but to me it reminded me more of like especially like british tv in the 90s where if there was a cliffhanger it would usually just be answered at the beginning of the next episode (laughs) even like the batman 66 like show it's like you can't make people wait too long but that's not the world we live in now but that was really fun you know we're talking about the stranger let's talk about so we learn that he is not sauron great journey for him love that And, you know, we hear the whisper of he's the other one. We hear Stari, the cider of a wizard. Could you talk a little bit about his journey with Nori as it will go on when they go to Rune and kind of just talk about what you're most excited about for The Stranger? Um, I am really excited about... uh, The things I'm really excited about are kind of the way we've structured his story where we're discovering who he is as he does, mm-hmm. as opposed to having that knowledge and then he figures it out. I love learning along with the character. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of do that as, as he goes forward. And I am so excited about going to Rune, which really has not necessarily been explored, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that much um, uh, before. And then the other thing I'm really excited about is really Nori. You know, she's on an, she's wanted to be on an adventure. She's on an adventure now. Like, what is that going to look like for her? 
You know, um, it's that classic thing of like, you got what you wanted. Now what? <laughs> and so having the privilege to be able to explore the now what uh, is is uh, really exciting. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation and congratulations on a fantastic show, a really wonderful show. Yeah, we oh, thank you. We're such big fans. We're so glad you came to join us and we can't wait to see more. So thank you so much. I can't wait. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you to Jennifer Hutchison. Up next, House of the Dragon, Episode 9. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If listening to crooked shows in your podcast app is simply not enough, it's not enough, you need more, 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 check out... Crooked Radio. Take over every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress on the Sirius XM app. It's a great new way to hear and discover all the great voices and shows across the crooked universe. Ahead of the midterms all day, each weekend. And crooked listeners can get up to four months, four months free. So you can check it out at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. We're stepping out of the airlock and into the small council chamber where, you know, not nice things are afoot. We're here to talk about House of the Dragon, Episode 9, The Green Council, written by Sarah Hess and directed by Claire Kilner. Folks, the king is dead. Long live the king. R.I.P. to King Viserys. <laughs> R.I.P. to that man. <laughs> R.I.P. to that man. Um, word is kind of trickling out amongst the household staff. A young page tells Allison's handmaiden, Natalia. Uh, she goes and tells the queen. The queen uh, quickly tells Otto. And he's like, immediately he swings at, into action. He wants to know who who knows. 
And all of a sudden, Allison breaks this little bit of news to him. Oh, yeah. Uh, the last time I saw him, uh, he said that Aegon, Aegon should be king. Otto doesn't ask which one. Otto doesn't ask, okay, well, he wasn't the most lucid guy considering like he was on the edge of death mm-hmm. uh, for uh, X amount of, of years and also like doped to the gills on Milk of the Poppy. And he Could al- he have been talking about any <laughs> one of the numerous other Aegons throughout history? He just is like, good, great, we're running with that. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't be like, oh, that's very interesting that you were just the only person there. In fact, he must just think his luck has come. That in that moment, yes. he just thinks everything is working in his favor. Because as we quickly find out, as always, this motherfucker has been planning. Well, that's that's the point I wanted to make too. I saw a lot of people saying, like, oh, this is this is like a plot point out of like Three's Company with this kind of comedy of misdirection and miscommunication. I, I agree that there is something of that. But I also think, are, are, do you really think that if Allison had never heard the whole egg on, you know, babbling from the dying king, that Otto would have just been like, I'll forget all the plans we've been laying no. for decades and years. Let's just call it all off and we're not going. He would have gone with it. Anyway, anyway this, I, this little thing is just one small little other piece that he can then use to argue that this is all legit. The king said so. Mm-hmm. There were no witnesses. That's absolutely true. And there are multiple Egons alive right now. But he means this one. Uh, take my word for it. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually think I, you know, I am I am quickly becoming a true Allison apologist. And I, I just think <laughs> that the way that they have treated her in this show and given her so much more context and meaning is actually really just so wonderful and Olivia Cook is so great bringing her to life and I think this episode actually does a lot of really great work to show that while it seemed it may have seemed kind of like oh you know well now Alison doesn't you know she's not a bad person because she thinks of the prophecy and and she that is really just a small plot point for Alison that adds conflict to her story and changes the reasons that she pursues the things she would pursue. Because as we find out in the small council meeting, this was always going to happen. Always it was gonna always going to happen. It's just now there's a tiny part of Alison's brain that believes it's what's supposed to happen. Small council is hastily assembled. Otto has a strict no in, no one in, no one out rule. I want to shout out just very quickly uh, the master of ships, Tyland Lannister, who is a dumb motherfucker. You know, (laughs) it's like the king has looked dead. He's got no arm. He's got one eye. He's like can't breathe. He's been in bed for years. The fact he survived 20 years is a miracle. Yeah, you get called to an emergency meeting early in the morning and you're like, hey, what's happening? Why did you get? Come on, you know what's happening. Don't don't be obtuse. Anyway, Otto is like, hey, uh, so we grieve for Viserys, uh, but it's time to get down to business after Otto has just shared Alicent's uh, interpretation of, of Viserys' last words, Tylen says, then we may proceed now with the assurance of his blessing on our long-laid plans. And now... This is a great moment because you realize, as Alicent is realizing, Mm -hmm. how how long these plans have been in motion for, you're realizing that Alicent really is this naive. You forget that she's been put in this position since she was a a child. 
Otto is her protector, the person who she trusts. It is just now, just now that she realizes, oh, wait a second. They've been hiding things from me. Mm -hmm. They've been planning things that I have no idea about. Yeah. This episode is an awakening for Allison, and I wish it hadn't have taken this long, but there is some really brilliant stuff here where we just learn about how she has been manipulated and abused and exploited by every man around her for as long as we can imagine. And there's only one person who will be real with her this episode, and it is Rhaenys. And it is a really great moment when we get to it. Oh, my God. One of the best speeches in the entire show. Lyman Beesbury, Master of Coin. Only real one. Only loyal Only man. real one he in the, the building, only real Lyman one in Beesbury. The I will not have this, he says. And he calls Aegon an imposter, points out that, hey, remember when the realm f- swore fealty to Rhaenyra in the fucking throne room? He tears to ribbons the claim that the king at the last minute on his deathbed with no witnesses except the the boy's mother changed his mind. He's, he had years and years and years to change his mind, and now he changed his mind? Get out of here. Grandmaster Orwile is trying to get him settled down, but Lyman continues, uh, beginning to now to wonder darkly if the king was murdered. Honestly fair. And it's very honestly fair. <laughs> and it's and it's clear, I think, to the Greens now that Beesbury is going to be a problem. So Kristen Cole murders him, smashes his head into the table, into his little marker ball. And R.I.P. Lyman Beesbury. It was wonderful to see this this Ooh. this integrity too little too late. But Beesbury throughout the season has been like asleep at meetings, not really <laughs> understanding what's going on behind, like talking about a topic that they moved on from 10 minutes ago. And it's fucking great to see him <laughs> in his final moments standing toe to toe with all these very powerful people and speaking truth to power. It got him killed. But fucking R.I.P. to Lyman Beesbury, a real one. He was a real uh, one. Pouring out for Lyman. And also... We will say it again. I've been saying it. I am the nut. If if there's a million Kristen Cole haters on this earth, I am one of them. <laughs> if there is only Ugh. one Kristen Cole hater on this earth, it is me. And if there's I, no Kristen Cole haters, it's because I'm dead. Like I the only thing hate I this want, guy. <laughs> the only thing I want from Kristen Cole is his skincare routine because oh everybody's aging in everybody in King's Land is aging, but him hatred has like. Bitterness has kept him young. Has kept him young. Uh, Commander Westerling draws his sword on Cole. Kristen draws his sword on Commander Westling and says, I'm not going to allow vile slanders against the Queen. Nobody mentioned the Queen. The Queen's literally like, sorry, he didn't say anything about me. Like, please shut up and just take your sword away. So Cole stands down, but you can see on Westerling's face that he's like, oh, Shit, this is not going the way I thought. The debate continues. Now, Alicent, understanding what has been afoot, begins to make her presence felt. She's like, okay, what are we going to do with Rhaenyra? Um, Otto's like, well, we got to take her prisoner. Uh, and, you know, we'll give him the opportunity to bend the knee. Allison is like, you know, she's never going to bend the knee. So what happens then? And it's now mm-hmm. that she realizes, oh, my father is plotting to have Rhaenyra, Damon, and all their children murdered. The thing uh, that he very heavily manipulated poor old Allison into believing would happen to her, he, it was just him never reflecting his own behavior. Yeah. It was just him. She never, that's what he wanted to do. She never thought about the flip side that if we must seize power 
so that Rhaenyra and her children won't kill me and my children. She didn't understand that conversely, that means when we seize power, we, we have to kill Rhaenyra yeah. and her children. Um, but of course, Allison doesn't know what to do next. Uh, Thailand is like, OK, so what do you want to do, queen? And Allison doesn't really know. Otto definitely knows. And he says, and it's a chilling moment. He says, OK, uh, Sir Harold, I want you to go to Dragonstone at once with your best guys. And I want you to kill Rhaenyra, Damon, and everybody there very quietly, as quietly as you can. And uh, then it'll be mission accomplished. Uh, Westerling thinks about this for like a half a second. And he's like, nope, I'm there's no king. I'm the commander of the Kingsguard. There's no. Uh, so until such time as there is a king, I don't have a job. So I'll see you later. And he leaves again. Shouts to Commander Westerling for showing uh, some integrity. I was going to say, in my opinion, took him too long. But you know what? Yes, I I'm excited to see this happen. I am excited to see where we may see him pop up. I have fond memories of the small moments he spent with Rhaenyra before. I hope that he may see fit to to yes. fix his ways and go and make the uh, corrections to his behavior. But it's a great moment when he takes off his cloak. One of the few good moments for the Kingsguard in this series <laughs> and in the stories writ large, uh, Alice and Otto go to find Egon, the, the, apparently the new king. He's not in his room. Princess Helena doesn't know where he is. Allison has a private moment with his daughter, breaks the news, uh, and then Helena says, there's a beast beneath the boards, but of course no one really understands the importance of this. And Helena Otto, is telling her, like she is grabbing her, her up and saying, like, please. It's unclear to me that Helena truly understands what she's saying at any given time. That said, if she doesn't know herself the meaning of what she is saying, she maybe knows it it's comes important. To her in a vision, some yeah, she the, you can tell in the desperate desperate tone that she has, the way she grabs her mother's hand that she knows that it's important. Um Otto approaches Sir Eric of the King's Guard, who's been Egon's sworn shield for uh for some time now. Uh He's like, where's the prince? Eric doesn't know. He says, I want you and your brother to go in the city, find Egon. Don't tell anybody, especially the queen, what you're doing. You find the king, you bring him to me. Meanwhile, Princess Renice wakes up in her room and she finds that she's locked in. She looks out the window and sees the household staff being rounded up. It, you have to imagine at that point, the wheels must be turning. Mm -hmm. She must understand like what has probably happened. Kristen Cole. Everybody's favorite. Breaks the news of Aegon's disappearance and of Sir Eric's uh, mission to Alicent and Aemond. Alicent then says, okay, Chris and Cole, take – you need to go find Aegon before Eric does. Take Aemond with you because Aemond, of course, knows everything that his brother's been up to. Later in the throne room, Otto has what lords and and ladies are were, – were apparently in the, in the Red Keep at this time, gathers them together – uh, and it, probably specifically the ones that that are there that pledge their fealty to Rhaenyra mm -hmm. in the past or at least known to be black loyalists. And he says, OK, um, so we're crowning Aegon today and everybody has to swear fealty to him and to renounce Rhaenyra. Who's who's going to do it? Most do it, which I get it. This is you know that you're going to be strung up in the courtyard if you don't do it. But yeah. if you don't. House Fell remains on its feet. Um, uh, Lord Caswell eventually kneels, but then we see later that he'll try and escape and get word to Rhaenyra. Um, meanwhile, 
we see an underground fight club where Eric and Eric uh, uh, know uh, are kind of like touring around. They know that Egon likes to spend his time there. It's a horrific place where kids apparently fight to the death. And one of Masari's agents comes and says, um, you know, apparently makes contact with them and tells them, hey, uh, my my boss has some information to for you. Also, we see mm-hmm. that there are Targaryen bastards down there yep. in the dungeon one of them, probably Aegon's, yeah. probably the one we saw. And Eric and says there's probably a lot more of Aegon's bastards. Now, keep that in mind, because as this war pops off, dragon riders are going to become necessary. And suddenly these these orphans who have Targaryen blood could become very valuable. Yeah. And also, they're going to be, if they survive these fighting pits, they're also going to be incredibly battle-hardened. They sharpen these kids' teeth, they sharpen their fingernails, they have them just oh, clawing at each other. It's it's horrific stuff. And we see Egon's bastard who we see, presumably, is about four years old. That's These, these are like babies. It's, it's really horrific, horrific stuff. And this is when Eric and Eric start having the really important conversation about Egon not being the right person to be king. <laughs> Here's something that I found noteworthy. The closer you are to Egon, right? Obviously, like Eric, as his sworn sword has had a front row seat to Egon's, you know, various doings over the however many years. The closer you are to him, the less likely you are to want to support the guy. I think yep. that that is very, very, very incredibly telling. telling. Like, listen, I've. I've been up close and personal with this guy, and it can't be him. And that is a really, really interesting conversation. Um, later, Allison goes to see Renice. This is after watching the Silent Sisters prepare the king's body. And she asks for Renice's support. She makes a really good pitch. She says, like, listen, um, uh, it's, it, you can have Driftmark. Driftmark will go to your daughters. Like, everything will be fine. Just support us. Like, that's what we need. And Renice, it's unclear what side Renice really is going to come down on. Mm-hmm. But she says at this time, listen, the word of my house is not fickle. Um, and also, un- left unspoken here is the fact that, like, Though Renice and Corliss have had their disagreements, they've been a very strong partnership yes. in terms of decision-making for these years. And Corliss is alive. He's not dead. Mm-hmm. So the time has not come for her to take that position and make these decisions in his absence. Um, Allison then makes a pitch to the heart. She's like, listen, you should have been queen uh, and in a different world, maybe, you know, maybe the realm would accept a woman as a ruler. But she says, we do not rule, but we may guide the men that do gently away from violence and sure destruction and instead toward peace. And then Renice says oh. something that is stuck with me, which is you don't you're in a prison and you don't see it. You know, you're doing everything to serve all these men, your son, your father, your husband. And you don't want to escape from your prison. You just want to build a window. window. You just want to put a window in it. And I was like, damn. Good. And Renice just sells it because I know that she does believe that Alison means that she thinks she could be queen. Like there's there's a moment of connection there where there's this understanding. And then after Renice says that brilliant 
truth, which I think is the scale. Very, very true. Very, very apt. And we learn even more so that it's not just her family that has been exploiting Allison and, 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 you know, that she's kind of shaping the world for these different men. It's also other grotesque men as well. But what I love is Renice leans in to her mm. and says, have you never pictured yourself on the Iron Throne? And Olivia does such a great job in that moment that you honestly, like, don't actually know. Like, is Alison actually that naive that she has never done so. it? Or, I think so. Or does she? And and the, they they do such a great job just sticking on Olivia's face as she thinks about, oh, you know, and oh, that is just such a good scene. I have to say, that scene really made me appreciate Cersei Lannister. Now, Cersei is Ooh. a terrible person. Awful. Brutal, ruthless, murderer, torturer, terrible, evil person. But she was very clear-eyed about the way this world worked. Mm -hmm. And she didn't pussyfoot around with appearances and how people might feel and wondering, oh, will the realm accept this? That was what people expected of women she knew. Mm -hmm. And so when she went to seize power, she just did it. Yeah. she When she had power, unlike Alicent, who has power but is trying to, like, wield it softly through other men, through the, through the men in her life, through other people, Cersei just said, I'm wielding power. I'm going to wield power in my own hands. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tear up this order that Ned Stark is trying to, trying to give me. I'm going to, I'm going to just do the things that people don't expect women to do. They don't mm -hmm. expect them to act this directly. And if Alicent had that with her current moral compass, yeah. I know. it'd probably be a better world, I, honestly. I wonder... I've been thinking a lot about the choices they made to build out Alison, which I do love. I do wonder if they were worried that it would be hard to not just make her a Cersei light if she was like a real conniving, power-hungry person. But I would love to see a little bit more of that. That uh, self-determination and violence yeah. that needs... Because you know that you can rule better than everyone else. And we always know that ends badly. But you know what? Sometimes in Game of Thrones, while well, you need it, and it's funny you should bring up Cersei because there is a moment at the end of this episode that I do understand that we are going to talk about. But like in that moment, I was just thinking like Cersei would never. Cersei. Uh, uh, we will talk about it. We will talk about that. Let me just say as a quick aside, uh, to quickly talk about Cersei, I, having spent so much time thinking about these characters, it makes sense that Cersei would have this very jaundiced but also clear-eyed understanding of the way the world works because she has, since she was a child, had a secret that if it was discovered yeah. could lead to the most direst of consequences. And so she is just a very, very keen and clear-eyed observer of human nature, of the way things work because she has always thought and had that radar up for any hint that she might be discovered. Yeah. So that's how I always thought about Cersei. Anyway, Otto now goes to meet with Masaria after Eric and Eric bring the hand, uh, the message. Uh, Masaria is still French. She says she has Egon hidden somewhere in Flea Bottom. Uh, and for his return, she asks for an end to the systematic abuse of children in Flea Bottom, the fight clubs that the gold cloaks ignore. 
uh, that they are bribed to ignore. Otto gives his word that he looks into it. And I just want to say that on the one hand, this is so frustrating for Missaria, but it also feels very true to a kind of to to a kind of character that that I have known and interacted with, a kind of person who hates, quote unquote, the system. Missaria is a true revolutionary, like kind of like Rhaenys in that sense. Mm-hmm. She's not saying like, oh, we're going to reform this, you know, this uh, feudal system that we live by, like around the margin. She's saying, no, I want everything overturned. I want freedom and peace for the children of Flea Bottom. Things that absolutely no one is ever going to give to her. And she mistakes the fact that the system is broken and her hatred for the system. She has unfortunately conflated her hatred of the system with mis- with underestimating yes. the way this world works. Because had she really understood what she had and how this world works, she would never have just given Egon up no. for a promise that they would also, fix the, the fighting she pits went, for the kids. She went to the wrong person. It's ironic she went to the because wrong guy. Alicent is ironically the person who probably could have been That's emotionally exactly. charged into making this decision. One, because it's her son, and two, because she probably would think the flea bottom abuses are horrific. But also, like, babe... If Egon is king, that ain't never happening. This is the guy yeah. who goes there. He who is, goes he's there. He's the number one fan. You should have just killed him. He's literally the reason that it exists. His favorite club. He's <laughs> not going to do that. It's not happening. And babe. to give and to give him over without any kind of collateral mm-hmm. at all. I mean, you could have just asked just, for some gold at least, and you could have got those kids just out of there. So unfortunately naive. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the way that. When she says there's no power but what people allow you to take, this, again, very revolutionary statement of people power in a world in which the small folk, the people, the common people don't mean anything to the to the people who rule, right? They're other than as an engine for, for their economies to till mm-hmm. the fields and fucking make the food and et cetera. When she says that to Otto— and makes him promise to like look into the to the abuse of children and flea bottom. And he says uh, he says that and to remember that like there's no power but what the people allow you to take. He says, yeah, I, I don't worry, I'll remember. And he says it in that ominous way that you understand he means I will remember you. And once I have the king back, I'm going to take revenge. Yeah, exactly. It's like I can't have somebody who thinks, who even thinks that they have control over the people. Because as we all know, this is the nature of revolution. There are always far more people than there are rulers. There's a reason that nowadays we call it the 1%. If everybody worked together and wanted to change things, they could. So you can't have a leader. He's telling you, I'll remember because I'm going to kill you. But guess what? Doesn't even have to do that. (laughs) Doesn't even have to make the effort. So they find uh, the prince in the Great Sept. He's delivered uh, after a fight outside the Sept. Um, he's delivered to the queen. Sorry, Otto. Sorry, Otto. Allison then goes to see Otto. She finds him sending letters. Uh, he understands that she, that she has the prince. He pitches family unity in the transition to come. Allison is like, no. 
Reluctance to murder is not a weakness. I have egg on. We will now proceed as I see fit. And that means offering terms to Rhaenyra that she will actually accept so we can avoid war. And that's what Viserys would have wanted. And you know that's what Viserys would have wanted. Otto is like, this is you're letting your friendship with Rhaenyra cloud your judgment. And Allison just runs over this. She's like, I'm putting my people in mm-hmm. charge. Kristen Cole is the new Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Aegon is going to be anointed tomorrow. I've set it all up. We're going to do it in the Dragon Pit because we want everybody to see it. He's going to wear Aegon the Conqueror's crown. He's going to have the sword. He's going to have the whole thing. Now, this is a very telling moment. And I think one that is subtle but just hammers home what has been one of the central themes of this season, which is this patriarchy, both obvious and subtle, like uh, ingrained mm-hmm. and kind of the way it surrounds everybody. She's giving these orders like a queen, like a ruler, like someone in charge. And when that happens in this episode, when a when a woman is giving orders, specifically Otto in this case, reacting to it, they don't react as if a ruler has given Mm-mm. them orders. What he does is he deflects and, and immediately moves the conversation to something he's more comfortable with. He says, you look so much like your mother in certain lights. Instead of, yes, your grace, I heard you, I followed you. And it's felt like such a real and relatable moment mm-hmm. because he's not able to be comfortable with the idea of a woman ruling. We've seen it in everything he's done up to this point. And that includes his own fucking daughter. He can't can't be subservient in this moment, even though that's the fucking queen talking to him. uh, And it's so well delivered. Reese Ifans is so good. We all knew we wanted him to come back. It was so great to see him come back. It's really creepy, too, because now she's old. And his yeah. and the mother was like his lover. There's so much it's to it. Infantilizing. It's, it's infantilizing. There's so much to it's it. It's creepy. Not only that, I think the saddest thing about this is that Allison is giving all these orders and telling how it's going to go. But the saddest thing is she is just enacting the plan that Otto wanted. Yeah. Like yeah, sure, yeah. maybe she's going to say don't kill Rhaenyra, but Otto doesn't care. Like she is putting Aegon on the crown. She is usurping the throne. It's really sad because even in this moment of power, she is actually still just being manipulated right. by him. I mean, it's so it's so internalized, the mm-hmm. way this system works. I mean, Renice was exactly right. You're not trying to destroy the prison. You want to live in the cell but have more views. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. Um, Laris comes to see boo. Allison. And he's, boo. <laughs> and he's very excited because he has some intel and he knows that uh, it's something that Allison's going to want to hear. And we now discover the price tag of such information. It is Allison has to degrade herself, has to show her feet to this man. Uh, Guest directed by Quentin Tarantino. pleasures himself. <laughs> yes. And Laris tells Allison, okay, that the, um, Otto found Aegon first because of Missaria's web of spies. Allison's lady-in-waiting is one of her agents. Uh, and Laris suggests assassinating Masaria. Now let me see your feet. Now, this again is on the one hand, on surface level, right? This is shocking. It is surprising, you know, considering in the books, the historians, the fictional historians are always wondering, oh, what what made the enigmatic Laris Strong tick? What was it that motivated him? Now we know, right? On the other hand, on a deeper, like really more uh, – substantial and real level, 
the fact that he feels comfortable doing this is another expression of how deeply misogynistic and, and oh, patriarchal yeah. this society is. Because even though he has much less power mm-hmm. in real terms than her, he could order like she could order his tongue out, his head cut off, every tortured to death, his fucking house destroyed. Like she could order it all. But he understands that in this world, men have the men yep. have the power. And this is how this is the relationship we have. No matter how powerful you are, I can still get you to do this thing that I want. In and a that's way really that is, the fetish, honestly. Is that is really the fetish. It is the power. Yeah. It, it's the power. It all ties in. This is such an interesting episode for Alison because it shows that the way that Otto treated her and sold her and used her essentially just established every relationship she would ever have with men, whether it was personal yeah. or business. She almost doesn't seem to realize that she could just kill Laris. She could literally no, kill him. He could he could it, tell her the information and she could kill him. That's right. How long has this been going on for? Is this what she was doing when she went there for the dinner? Is yep. this something he did later because he'd killed those people and he said it was in his her name? Also, you know, we get a couple of moments this episode that seem to confirm or at least imply that Kristen and Allison have been having a sexual relationship or at least in some kind of romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, for all the love you have to me, as your queen, and she's like right up close in his face when she sends him to go and get egg on. So first of all, uh, boo to Kristen because you're a hypocrite. What I about sleeping him. with Rhaenyra? Like, chill out. I, I hate that guy so but much. But also like another situation where she's essentially been manipulated. She gave Kristen his, she let him keep his honor while dishonoring him by apparently being in this relationship. she She's now giving him more power. All these things. When he has, he has not been a loyal or good person, you know, he he did, he murdered Lyman Beesbury just in the council chambers. He's a wild card, but men have the power. She, she thinks she is using him as a tool when really she is once again being used. And it is just, oh, it's heartbreaking stuff, man. And Olivia just makes the character I, I, so much more complex than a victim. It's more I just agree. like a, in, a really interesting expression of like internalized misogyny and the way it kind of she's manifests. She's making, she's acting in a way and according to the choices that she thinks she has without, mm-hmm. you know, again, to Renisa's point, without fully understanding how much power she has. Like yeah. she will come, she will come to regret putting Egon on the throne. She will. Yeah. And she just will. She will only later, this is me theorizing, she will only much later truly understand how much power she gave away in that mm-hmm. moment. She thinks like, oh, we're gonna inf- I'm gonna in- I'm his mother. I'm gonna influence him. This shit is out of your control. Yeah. Already now it's out of your control, but it's gonna be com- almost completely out of your control as soon as he's crowned. And the irony is she could literally sit on that throne as Queen Regent if she wanted to, or just queen. That's the funniest thing. She is currently the most powerful person yeah. in the whole she could Otto, say, you're under Otto, you're under arrest. Yeah. Let's call a great council and get the realm to and guess like, who else vote is on coming. it now. It's Rhaenyra yeah. and it's Damon, right. and we're all gonna find a way to rule together. It probably wouldn't last very long, but as we know, most of the Targaryen rulers do not last very long in the history. So you could have at least given it a try, babe. But instead, give it to Aegon. Oh my god. 
you're an idiot. He's a sociopath. And they do such a brilliant moment of showing the horrors of what he could potentially reap coming up. So it's the moment of Aegon's ascension. Sir Eric uh, springs Rhaenys from her room saying, I'm not going to let this usurpation stand. Um, we see in a quick snippet that uh, Laris's men have hit the White Worm's headquarters and it's in flames, although we don't see a body. So I would— Miss Sarah, she, she is not she's falling little, for that. She Let's slid be real. Away. She's laying. Yeah, she slid away. Rhaenys and, and Eric are, are kind of rushing through the city, but then they get caught up in the crowds that are heading to the dragon pit. They're being herded there really by all the city watch guards because they want as many people to see this as absolutely possible. So Rhaenys ends up in the dragon pit. Meanwhile, Alicent and Aegon are, are riding there in their, uh, in their Uber carriage. And Alicent is, tr- again, here, it, here is that moment again, right, where Alicent as the queen is telling Aegon what she wants. She's saying, listen, we're not going to make war against Rhaenyra. We're going to try to make peace. I want you to rule with mercy. And then Aegon's just like, do you think dad loved me? It's like, we're talking business. Literally. Pull your pants up and understand that we're, like, a lot has been done to put you on the throne Mm -hmm. today. We need to talk business right now, not work through your fucking daddy issues. Uh, but of course, and and it's interesting as well that Aegon sees through all this. He's like, listen, my dad, first of all, I could tell he didn't like me. And second of all, he could have changed his mind mm-hmm. about who he wanted to be his heir any time over the last 20 years. He never did. He never did. Now he did it in, in with his last breath. OK. And in, a, anyway. in like a good, like scary sociopath moment, the only thing that he seems to interest him or make him feel like it's worthwhile is when he gets the cat's paw blade and he's just yeah. looking it's at the knife. It's the feeling of power. It's the feeling yeah. of power and we get to see him have it again in a moment and it's it's all it's 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 all going to end badly. You just know it. It's going to end quite badly. So uh Egon is anointed king. Uh Kristen Cole puts the fucking crown of Egon the Conqueror on his head. How's that his job? <laughs> I, pretty wild stuff. Egon draws black fire from its scabbard. He holds it aloft to the people. It's, to be fair, a very, very mild applause that breaks but out. But you like, can see in his eye, he still, yeah. he feels that little moment of power when he's, he's like pumping it in his... And it's phallic too, yeah, you know, yeah. the whole thing of the, the symbology. He's that... realizing that he is like now the most powerful man on earth, which as like a regular yeah. rapist is probably like the best feeling in the world. And then here is the moment. Boom. Boom. There's the, the floor explodes. Uh, untold scores of people are fall into the hole or are crushed by the kind of explosion of rubble and, and rock and a cloud of dust that comes up as Melise, Renice's dragon, emerges from the hole. She's on the back of it. It it's the dragon looks at everybody on the on the dais there. Uh, Rhaenys locks eyes with with Alicent and Melis roars, but no flames, and then escapes. She could have ended it right there, but she doesn't. We should talk about this. Let's start (laughs) there. Cersei would have said Dracarys. They would have gone Cersei would have said Now, here's my... I'm as frustrated as anyone, and I'm sure Daemon and Rhaenyra are going to be absolutely beside themselves. That said... Cersei would have done so because to do it would have immediately made her queen, mm-hmm. right? Rhaenys is in a much more complicated position. She does that 
and it doesn't necessarily end the war. The mm. high towers have a huge fucking army that they could call, and they're not going to just lay down. And so she's in this place where, okay, I do this. I start a war. Is it my war to start? Does Do, do people see me as a hero or a villain? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which side wins? I've done my job by escaping. And what comes after that is really like above my pay grade. Now, I... Again, if it was Cersei, Cersei would have done it because immediately she's queen. If Rhaenys does it, it's kind of unclear mm-hmm. what happens. Does the, we would think that the war would be over and certainly the leadership would have been decapitated. But again, House Hightower is not going to just fucking lay down. The supporters of the Greens are probably not just going to lay down. And Rhaenyra still has the problem of Lots of dragons, not a lot of riders, mm-hmm. not a lot of foot soldiers to take this country. I don't know. It's complicated, though, but it is it's so frustrating because you're like, just fucking do you're it. You're just like, do fucking it. do it. I love I love I, I love Olivia Cook and I feel a lot of empathy for Alison. But I was still like, please just burn them. Even Helena, who I'm like, I'm like justice for Helena. But even but I think you raise a really, really good point. Also, something that I think is kind of hard when we think about it in Game of Thrones Thrones term, obviously, like, we think about Cersei blowing up, you know, the Sept and everything, and right. and we think about... But the other thing, like, you made a great point, right? This isn't really a world where it's just, like, Daenerys on a dragon and everyone's going to bow down to you because you have a dragon. That's not going to happen. If, right, Rhaeny- if Rhaenys kills them, there's just other dragons. Like, it's not like she... Ever, the Hightowers are not going to be like, oh, no, like... Yeah. Dragons. Like, they're going to be like, well, you just killed our whole family and ended our one claim. And we know the Hightowers are. And you're a Kinslayer now. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think the history books, I actually think the two things that you hit on that I hadn't really thought about until this conversation is the history books. How are you remembered? That is such a huge part. Oh, it would have been brutal. And it would have been ruthless. You know, the Kinslayer or or the royal, like, whatever it would be, like the entire, the Targaryen Slayer, you know, the, oh, because also, you know, like you said, not only did you kill a king, but you killed your kin, which is like the worst thing you can do. And then on top of that, she still has family that she loves who would immediately be put in danger by that choice. And I think that is a very interesting feeling. I think, if I'm not mistaken, in the post-credits, behind-the-scenes stuff, one of the creators of the show also mentioned like they they really felt like it was something that was a mother looking on a mother and being like i wouldn't i don't want to kill your children like i've been through mm. that like i don't want to i don't want you to have to go through that but i do i think you touched on some really good things i think this idea of legacy and how you would be remembered and then the reality of what that would have been and how it would have actually ended up playing out is so different to that kind of cathartic, classic Game of Thrones ending where you just red wedding it or you just like kill a bunch well, of people, it's like, right? It's like it's like Jamie Lannister, right? He did the oh. most heroic thing he had ever done in his life <laughs> by killing Ares the Mad King, yep. right? That was that was an absolutely that was the right 
thing to do. Unquestionably, and like he, and was he saved so many lives. Saved so many lives, became a true hero, the one that he'd always pretended to be, mm-hmm. the kind of like hero that like they sing songs about. And he was treated as a pariah for a his joke. entire life after. A joke. A jo- broke his oath, killed the king. No one trusts him. No one, like, here is the most good thing he has ever done, and no one will ever give him the credit for uh-huh. it. It is seen as a truly evil, bad thing that he did. I think about, I know it's not, but I, I just, I think about that episode with him and Brienne so much in the tub talk when he tells her for oh the my first God, it's, time it's the truth. so incredible. Oof. That is just one of the most heartbreaking scenes on TV. And it's so good. And I love, I, that really speaks to what I think is one of the best things that House of the Dragon is carrying over from Game of Thrones, which is this idea of having characters who do terrible things, but who are complex and who are human and who are not two-dimensional yeah. and who can exist on the side of both right and wrong and disgusting and noble. And I feel like they're really bringing that in a very interesting way. But I am like... So interested to see. I love Rhaenys. I am like. I think she's my favorite yeah, character right make now. Make her honestly, a queen. Like, I am here for I, it. <laughs> Give her justice. But, like, I want to know how that plays out. Because I feel like that too. in its own, that could have been a bottle episode in its own, but we're about to go into the finale. So, like, how does it play out? If her next stop is Dragonstone, right? Yeah. Bringing the news of what has occurred, they're going to say, Okay, how'd you get out? Number one, number two, and and then you just flew away. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going, there's going to be some kind of a reckoning, and she's going to have to answer for that. Um, but again, I think that her position is a lot more complex. I than, think so too. Than it appears to be. Okay, I want to ask you one question, and this is going to be a classic me asking you yeah. a question you can't answer, right? Because I'm not going to be specific because I don't want to do any spoilers. But I've yeah. enjoyed so much reading about the histories and reading stuff. How closely in the finale do you think that they're going to stick to what we know of the books and what happens after Aegon is is uh, anointed? I mean, it's been pretty much on book mm-hmm. up until now. Obviously, the, the dragon coming out of the dragon pit is nowhere in the books. Yeah. And you have to imagine that that's not them filling in details. That's an ad. Right. That's not something that actually happened, but the historians ignored because you would imagine that's pretty hard to ignore <laughs> a dragon bursting. There would out at of least be rumors about it. There would at yeah, least be right? like one funny song. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that news is getting out. So I, I have to imagine that's an ad. But but overall. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be pretty much what we know from the books. Yeah. I'm very excited with, to with see, a lot of color added. Yeah, to see well, how it up, plays out. Up next, more House of the Dragon and Ask the Maester. Folks, have you heard about this? Dragons have arrived on HBO Max. <gasps> I can't believe it. The HBO original series House of the Dragon is a prequel set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. House of the Dragon tells the story of House Targaryen locked in an epic battle for the Iron Throne and power over the Seven Kingdoms. The epic series promises more drama and betrayal than ever. Listen to the official Game of Thrones podcast, House of the Dragon, Co-hosted by myself and Nerdette's Greta Johnson on HBO Max, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to celebrate, we're going to answer your questions. Here we go. William asks, are dragons asexual? This is a very interesting and important question, and the books disagree, and the various 
historians and observers of dragon biology and history throughout the throughout the books disagree on it as well. Some of our fictional sources seem to suggest, and I personally believe, that dragons are gender fluid and the gender changes as the need arises. So uh, if there's not a lot of dragons in the world, you need more eggs, all of a sudden a dragon is female um, and vice versa. Here is uh, Maester Aemon Targaryen from Feast for Crows quoting Septon Barth. He says, quote, dragons are neither male nor female. Barth saw the truth of that, but now one and now the other as changeable as flame. Other figures in the books disagree with this. For instance, um, Cyrax, Rhaenyra's dragon, is referred to as a she-dragon by various fictional historians um, because the beast has been known to lay eggs. She's been seen laying eggs, um, therefore she-dragon. Uh, subscribers to the binary gender theory of, of dragon biology basically say if it lays eggs, it's a she. If you never saw it lay eggs, it's a male. It's very simple. <laughs> um, all that said... And I think this is important. There are no sources that mention dragon sex or mm. the act of a male dragon fertilizing dragon eggs. And you would imagine that something like that would be incredibly hard to miss. Therefore, I lean to the gender fluid theory of dragons and also their magic. That yeah. would just make sense. You can right? just magically lay an egg when you need to lay an egg. Yeah. Yeah. And also very Jurassic Park. I, I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jeff asks... Is it possible that Maester Eamon or Brendan Rivers knew about the Aegon prophecy? A recurring theme. Let's talk about A it. A recurring theme. So we've covered this before, but I love talking about it's it. It's so much um, fun. But like, let's just catch it up and 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 specifically drill down on Brendan Rivers, yeah. the the uh, Blood Raven, aka the Three Eyed Crow, one of the famous bastards of Aegon the Fourth, Aegon the Unworthy, and Maester Eamon, uh, the man who could have been king but decided to pass. So. After the death of King Makar in 233, a great council was was called in order to decide the next ruler. Anus Blackfire, son of Damon Blackfire, leader of the first Blackfire Rebellion and the, the person who basically launched multiple rebellions, that like caused multiple rebellions against the Targaryens to happen all under the, the, uh, the banner of Blackfire Rebellions, wanted to attend to put forth his claim. He's a Blackfire, but also like Damon Blackfire had, you know, has Blackfire, the Sword of Kings, and uh, Aegon IV really liked him, and everybody seemed to think he would have been a good ruler had he not been a bastard, although he was legitimized. And so Anus uh, is like, let me come to King's Landing and put forward my claim since we're all voting on this. Brendan Rivers, another of Aegon's bastards, key figure in Westerosi politics, and Makar's hand said, sure, absolutely, come through, Anus. That, that'd be great. <laughs> now, Important to mention, Brendan uh, was a pivotal figure all throughout the Blackfire Rebellions. He His heroic efforts at the Battle of Redgrass Field uh, helped turn the tide and helped ensure a loyalist victory. Uh, he put down the second Blackfire Rebellion basically on his own accord, arresting Damon Blackfire II, who is, by the way, a dragon dreamer, uh, much like he had that Targaryen gift for prophecy, uh, as chance would have it, uh, managed to arrest him before the, the, you know, the pretender's plans could be fully realized. And then Brynden dueled Agor Bittersteel Rivers for a second time during the climactic battle of the third Blackfire Rebellion. Uh, when uh, that that force was attempting to put Hagon Blackfire on the throne, then when Hagon Blackfire surrendered, 
he was then dishonorably beheaded on the battlefield after giving up his sword, a no-no. But it's it's heavily suggested that that happened probably on Brendan's orders. And then uh, Brendan Rivers also argued for Agor Rivers' execution, but he was overruled. Um, and then Agor later escaped. Now, I say all that because when Anus Blackfire arrived for the Great Council, you know, thinking, great, I'm going to have my chance. I'm going to say my piece. I'm going to have my chance to be king. Maybe he was then arrested and illegally, dishonorably beheaded in the fucking dungeons, right? King and, and probably, again, on Brendan Rivers' orders. We know this because King Aegon V, as soon as he became king, one of his first acts was to arrest Brendan for the murder and have him sent to the wall as part of the group that included Maester Aemond, brother of the now king. Now, important context. Aegon V's reign began in the middle of a very, very serious winter. And as we've talked about before, any king who knew about the prophecy, any person who knew about the prophecy would view winter in a, in, with alarm, would be mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, is this the one, right? Now, more important context, the realm had just been through numerous rebellions that threatened to not just topple the Targaryen dynasty, but if you believe in the prophecy, put the entire world at stake. Now, thinking about that cast these events in different lights. What if Brynden's two dishonorable executions of Blackfire pretenders with the attempted third execution of Agor Rivers weren't just he's like a fierce Targaryen loyalist, but desperate measures taken to neutralize threats to the entire world. He's doing this because he knows if they win, the world is done, the White Walkers mm-hmm. win. Now, interesting point. It, it, People were surprised at Brendan Rivers' rise to Hand of the King under King Ares, but apparently it was due to, quote, his interest in arcane lore and ancient history, which was shared by King Ares. So, and, and again, people were surprised. At this. They were like, how, what, Brendan Rivers, really? Hand of the King? I would explain it this way. What if Rivers knew about the prophecy and not just knew about the prophecy, but maybe rediscovered it after the knowledge of it had been lost, right? And that's why Ares trusted him. Under this theory, Aegon V, who would know about it, right, then sends his brother Aemond and cousin cousin Brynden to the wall in the middle of winter, not as prisoners, you know, sent to the wall Mm -hmm. in order to head off a, a potential rebellion in which usurpers use Aemond as like a focal point to like, uh, you know, threaten Targaryen rule, but as scouts, like forward scouts to keep an eye on the enemy. And we know, of course, that Brendan Rivers then goes beyond the wall to get an even closer look at the White Walkers. So basically, yes, I think I think Brendan Rivers knew about it. And I think that's why Aegon V sent Aemond and Brynden to the wall because he wanted people he trusted as close to the enemy as possible. Okay, Jeff, thank you for asking that, yeah, because that is definitely our most in-depth theory on this ever. (laughs) And this is either going to be the ultimate We Were Right bell ring or HBO is just going to call up Jason to write this inevitable (laughs) story because I was engrossed. That is like, that's so good. Okay, Jake asks... Is it common for a third son to be sent away like Daron the Daring? Right. So this comes on the heels of confirmation from George R. R. Martin and, and co-showrunner Ryan Condal that Daron the Daring, the third son of Viserys and Alicent, uh, writer of, of Tessarion, 
does exist. We just didn't see him and he's living in Old Town just chilling. Yeah, this happens a lot, you know, like it, one, because um, it's important for houses who are in alliance to foster deeper connections with each other. Remember that um, part of like the the, the prehistory um, of Game of Thrones was the relationship between Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon and the fact that they both um, fostered at the Vale under Lord Aaron, and that's how they became close friends, right? So this is just the way, it, and it doesn't even have to be the third son. It could be any son, mm-hmm. really. But most often it is the son who is not the heir, right? The second and third sons who are sent to either be a cupbearer for this person or go squire for this lord or do this, you know, go to this place. But it's all in service of, you know, there's no television. There's only the ravens. <laughs> this is all in service of of fostering deeper connections and, and future alliances mm-hmm. with various important families throughout the realm. That's why weddings take place in the way they do. And that's why these uh, royals, young royals are sent off in the way that they are. Uh, Casey asks, if we are watching the Targaryen dynasty at its height, why are there so few Targaryens? There's actually a lot, uh, Casey. We have Rhaenyra, Viserys, may you rest in peace, their children, Jace, Luke, and Joffrey. Um, of course, there's Aegon, Aemond, Helena, and Daron. Shouts to Daron for existing. Uh, we have Rhaenys, uh, Targaryen. We have uh, her children, Laenor and Lena. Of course, Daemon. Targaryen, his children, Bale and Reyna, plus any number of Targaryen bastards who are running around in King's Landing and various other places. So there's actually like a lot of them right now. Jonathan asks, why doesn't Rhaenys kill the Greens? I think we, yeah, yeah, I we, think we answered yeah, yeah, yeah. this. I think we answered yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, cool. but, I, but again, I'm sure that this is a choice that not just frustrates the audience but will frustrate people in this world who will be like what the fuck uh kangan asks why does it seem like so many names are repeated within a generation well i mean this is like this is what happens in our real world there have been 11 king edwards (laughs) kings of england right you know how many three charleses now uh several many henrys Many, many Henrys, you know, if you go to France, there were 16 Louis. This is this is a world in which the symbols of power are very, very important for for stability and for people to understand who the ruler is. And one of the ways you do that in a, in a world in which many of the population are not going to be able to read, they're not like reading a newspaper, they don't know anything, all they know is – King Egon. They've heard stories about King Egon the Conqueror, and therefore, if there's another king named Egon, perfect. That's the king. That's all I know. That's all I need to know. Um, and again, it's a reflection of uh, kind of like the way names are doled out in our real world over the course of history. This just happens. And Duran asks, I'm so glad that you asked this because I think this is actually one of the nicest moments in the show. I'm very interested to hear Jason's thoughts on it. Now that Viserys has passed, what is the legacy of his reign in the book? The books, if we were to take the books as the history as written by uh, the people who, you know, viewed the source material and and had the stories come down to them in, in later decades, then what is passed down to history is that Viserys was essentially a weak king. And it's a much more... 
you know, if we take the books to be truly the historic text, then Viserys is viewed much less generously than he is in the show. And the show, again, like as we've said, he's a nice guy. He he yeah. he seeks. They call him Viserys the Peaceful. That seems yeah, like it's like, gonna be the name. He loved his family. He was more or less honorable. He made some bad choices and he wasn't as strong as he could have been at certain times, but he's more or less a good man. And honestly, like if you would have, you know, reality traveled him to like a, a democracy in the 20th century and made him a politician, he'd do quite well, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a leader. But in this world where like ruthlessness and strength are kind of prized and and any other kind of form of, of leadership is looked at side-eyed, you know, I think that unfortunately the thing that will come down through history is that Viserys was a weak king who couldn't take a strong stand between the greens and the blacks when he could have done so. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but it's reductive. It doesn't get at all of him. But basically that he was weak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially as his chosen heir was not the heir that ended up going after him. That says that in itself defines a lot of his his kind of uh, reign. Okay, eight. Liv asks, where did the white worm hide Aegon? Was this just an everyday average sept for before Baylor's <laughs> sept was built? This is called the Great Sept, and it's actually built on the same hill that will eventually um, be home to the Great Sept of Baylor. But uh, and it was, you know, obviously the the kind of holy meeting place before the Great Sept of Baylor. Um, but it's very, very lightly mentioned in the books. There's barely any any mentions of mention of it in terms of like average everyday septs um many castles including the red keep are gonna have their own septs and stuff where often the 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 royal family would go about like their kind of like daily everyday prayers and things like that folks don't forget to catch up now before this sunday's finale of the new hbo series house of the dragon this sunday on hbo max and don't forget the last Ask the Maester is going to be next week. Send your questions to askthemaester at gmail.com. Big thank you to Jennifer Hutchison and, of course, to Rosie Knight for co-hosting this podcast. Rosie, what do you have to plug? Uh, you can find me, Rosie Marks, on Instagram and Letterboxd. I have a ton of pieces coming out. You can read my Lord of the Rings finale recap, which was at IGN, which I had a lot of fun with. I have a ton of cool stuff coming out about superheroes and all that sort of rad things that I usually write about, obviously, here every week. And I will have cool comic book news coming soon though I don't know how soon so just keep an ear out for that catch the next episode of X-Ray Vision on October 28th and of course subscribe to the show on YouTube follow at XRV pod on Twitter and check out the discord to meet and hang out with lots of other X-Ray Vision fans and Rosie and I we'd love to hear from you uh, join the conversation there don't forget to send your House of the Dragon queries to askthemaester at gmail.com. And we love, 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 we love them. We love your five-star reviews. Here's one from Tim. Love this show so much. Rosie and Jason's joy is infectious. Thank you so much. I not only understand the shows they recap so much better after listening to their pod, but hearing their joy over little Easter eggs lifts my spirits. Oh, oh it's, so it's nice. what we love. Thank you so much. <laughs> we love to hear that. 
X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time. Bye. Hey, Mike, this is his dog from Marine. I'm a little sad today, Mike, because I, I just want to pay tribute to somebody I've always respected. You know, I grew up in Marine. That's over in Essos. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of access to the stuff that you guys have in Westeros, like Westeros Radio, you know, all that kind of stuff. We had to get it secondhand. Uh, but one of the things that really got me through as a young person is the the books of Lyman Beesbury. Sir Lyman Beesbury, they call him the bees. You know, books like Rich King, Poor King, and Bees G's, A Guide to Wealth in Westeros. Uh, they really got me through a lot of hard times, Mike. Lyman Beesbury is a great guy, a lot of wisdom in that in that head of his. And it was uh, just a real shame to see it smashed on the, on the small council table like that in such a disrespectful way. I didn't think that was right. I thought, uh, you know, somebody should do something about it. But that's uh, neither here nor there, Mike. So I just wanted to pull one out for Lyman Beesbury, a great guy, a great thinker, a really good author, and uh, you know one of my one of my childhood heroes, Mike. So uh, I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Want to make Mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May twelfth. Find tons of gifts from only thirty dollars at Nordstrom Rack: fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.